Uh, here we are. We're recording on uh, Friday, June 5th. So uh, three days before the WWDC keynote. And my guest is uh, Mark Gurman from uh, 9 to 5 Mac fame. Uh, Mark, I think what's it been about a year since you've been on the show? Um, yeah, I think last time was a little bit of after the uh, previous WWDC. Well, so. I couldn't think of anybody better to have uh, for the WWDC preload show, as I would call it, uh, than you. <laughs> Appreciate it. You've had a, a remarkable run this year, in my opinion. Well, we'll see how it comes on Monday, but uh, it looks like you uh, have have scored an enormous number of scoops. Thanks. I appreciate it. People who don't want Christmas spoils should probably just stop listening now. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that one. Uh, were you the type of kid who who hunted through the house for Christmas presents? I'm Jewish, so... <laughs> okay. Well, Hanukkah <laughs> no. birthday. Right. Hanukkah but birthday. we have Passover, and the tradition is to hide the matzah somewhere in the house. And uh, I would always be the one to find it when I was growing up, so... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but are you supposed to hide? You're supposed to find that, right? What about like what yeah. about like birthday presents? Oh, eh, yeah, maybe I go digging sometimes for those. I don't really remember, but I get your point. <laughs> I remember twice doing it, and I, <laughs> the thing is, is I found it the same place both times. One time, I found uh, a, a brand new dirt bike, a, a bicycle, in the basement. There's this like. Like it, in the back of my my parents' basement, there's like a little like extra room behind the door, and I wasn't even looking for presents. Uh, I just I don't know what I, I was just you know bored and like looking around the basement, and I went in there, and there was this awesome brand new shiny chrome dirt bike with red trim and red tires, and I was so naive, and this was I don't know like a couple of weeks before my birthday. And mm -hmm. I'm so naive. I didn't think, holy shit, they got me a dirt bike for, for my birthday. I thought, why is there a dirt bike in my parents' basement? <laughs> <laughs> How old were you at the time? Oh, I was probably, bike? I'm going to guess around like 10 or 11. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And then uh, and then I knew, though, that's the room to look in. And then for that Christmas, I went in there and looked around. And I saw that I was getting the Millennium Falcon, the big-ass Kenner Millennium Falcon toy. Um and then, and this is true, I honestly thought, you know what, I'm going to stop looking for Christmas presents, because now I feel terrible. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It's a little different with the Apple stuff. I mean, there's a lot of people who, you know, when all these stories are coming through, they're like, why are you publishing this? This is a lot of information. You're ruining the keynote. I don't look at it that way at all. There's movie spoilers. You know, people hunting for their birthday gifts. You don't have to read the stuff, but just doing my job as a reporter. I think what people are a little angry about is that you're so accurate. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little bit. We'll see. I have said I, I was on uh, uh, Josh Topolsky's tomorrow, New Tomorrow podcast uh, earlier this week and then last week with Renee Ritchie here on my show. But both times you came up uh, just in the – I, I I don't see how you can't come up if you're going to start saying what do you expect for WWDC, <laughs> um, but I mean this sincerely. I, I I've been reading you know Apple rumor websites ever since Apple rumor websites started, uh, and I'm not even saying nine to five back is more than a rumor website, but the type of sites that publish you know ostensibly hopefully informed well sourced you know information about uh, 
upcoming Apple stuff that is not, you know, not intended to be public information. I've been following it since, since they existed. So it's at least what, like 20 years, you know, the mid nineties when the web first came up. Um, and I remember in the early days, nobody was accurate. They were th- every site that existed at that time that was like focused on rumors. I think there was like, uh, Mac OS rumors. I, I always used to get it confused with, with, uh, now the longstanding website, Mac rumors. Right, um, right. But there was like Mac OS rumors and there were a couple more and their track records were atrocious. <laughs> to <say the> least. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, I didn't have the name claim chowder yet from, from my good friend, uh, friends at panic, the cable sasser and, and Stephen Frank. But I've always been obsessed with the notion behind it, which is why does nobody keep track of this crap? And, and just remember that these, this, everybody's all excited about this site, you know, that is reporting something, something about, you know, at the time, you know, like Mac OS 8.1 or something like that. When these were the same clowns who a year ago said this, that, and the other thing, none of which panned out. Right. Right. And in that time, there've been others who've had better records. Um, I've dabbled my toes in it in my own, you know, coy way. But in my opinion, nobody has had a run like you've had in the last two years with, in terms of accuracy. Yeah, I appreciate that. So something I wanted to ask you about your run last year before the Apple watch came out, you had some coy line about, Oh, something next month in September when everyone was expecting the watch to come out in October of last fall. Did you make a mistake there and you happened to get it right? Or was that like a true, like coy, <laughs> I know it's coming out in September type of thing. <laughs> That's an excellent question, Mark. <laughs> uh, we want the truth here. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know. And you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the reason that I don't even, I, 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 do less and less of that now than ever before is I found that it makes me, uh, uh, unhappy in life, unsettled because these things can change. But at the time that yeah. I wrote that, I happened to know that the watch was planned for September, but not, it, it was probably sometime in August when I wrote that. And I yeah. do remember that it was sort of a, you know, got picked up by tech meme and, and all this stuff. Um, I did know that that was the plan. Um, and I, you know, but it could change, you know, it definitely, I could have been wrong, which is why I didn't want to put it in, in more concrete terms. What I knew was I knew that the, they had the bigger venue booked for September and, um, uh, I just vague, you know, and just not first. It was very, very distant, but just, you know, I, I put it all together and it was very clear that it was September, not October. I think Patchkowski had it as uh, October. Well, yeah, but when he said October, that was like six months before the fall. And right. Between two months, of right. course, like you said, things can change. So Right. Well, he knows what he's talking about for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's, you know, rock solid. Um, so where do we start? I mean, there's actually a lot of stuff that has come out today. I mean, this is always the case before the right. the keynotes. So there's two of the things that are that are today uh that I saw. I don't know if you saw these. So Business Week or Bloomberg Business, I don't know what they're calling it this week. Um <laughs> 
uh, Lucas Shaw and Tim Higgins have a report that Apple, it, as of today, Friday, June 5th, is still uh, pushing to complete the music deals before Monday, that they don't have all of the music labels on board for the, the – I don't even see how it's – it's not even a secret anymore that they're going to come right. out with an updated streaming service. Right. Um, yeah. They've always been a sort of 11th hour with those details. I know you love that word. Even with like the book deals back with mm -hmm. the first iPad and the newsstand stuff over the last few years. So I think this is typical Apple. Every year, whenever they do a big media launch, we see stories that say, hey, you know, Apple's still working on those deals, faxing over some paperwork. So this is not terribly surprising meanwhile eddie q is uh courtside at the warriors game yeah so who are you rooting for oh you watch? Yeah. i you know what i used to be a, i'm a i used to be a huge basketball fan and uh i kind of fell out with the nba and i've kind of been getting back into it especially this year i felt like the playoffs this year have been terribly exciting uh oh yeah absolutely so i'm going with the warriors i i like the way really? they play uh but i have to say i like i do like the comeback story with the uh, with James going back to Cleveland and making them an instant contender. I think it's, yeah. I think it's two good teams and I like the way both teams play. Uh, I happen to really, really like the offense that, that the Warriors play though. I really like that penetrate and, and dish back out style of, of play. Right. I mean, they're both fantastic teams. I'm, I agree with you on the comeback story with LeBron basically carrying the team through the East himself. But I'm honestly not a fan of the whole Stephen Curry, Clayton Thompson play on the Warriors. It's hmm. too flashy when he takes that 25-foot three-pointer and then turns around before it's going in the basket. <laughs> like, that's it's pretty pompous, and uh, I'd say. so. I don't, I don't know. I like it. I, there's something about that that I, it, it appeals yeah. to me. I feel like if I had actually been a good player, it, it, the player that I could have, you know, would have dreamed of being would have been like Curry. Yeah, you could have been in the NBA instead of writing during Fireball. Yeah. Sort of yeah. a Reggie Miller style, wouldn't you say? You know. Yeah, 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 a bit Reggie Miller Simil style. Similar build, you know. Dead, dead, dead shooter from you know incredible distance. Anywhere, yeah. it's crazy. Um, but anyway, there's a great picture that's been circulating in the AP today of Eddie Q sort of cheering, <laughs> cheering uh, LeBron on from courtside. Yeah, this is why the deals aren't done yet. Picture proof. <laughs> what a year Eddie Q has had as a basketball fan. He's a Duke fan and a Warriors season ticket holder. So his college team yeah. already won the college championship and uh and his pro team is one game up in the finals. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll see how that works out over the next couple of weeks. I still think LeBron has a comeback in him. I'll tell you, that's the thing about the NBA finals is it's where, you know, the team with the greatest with the, it, it's you know, it sounds stupid, but it's the one sport where I think it's true where when it comes to the finals, the team that if, if there's two teams with like a, a Hall of Fame type player, and I wouldn't even say that Curry's a Hall of Fame type player, it's too early. But right, you know, if he continues where he is, he will be. Um, but with the greatest of the greater of the two All Star stars, usually wins, regardless of the other peripheral players on the team. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Right. I mean, like, and yeah. you know, the uh, Jordan teams were the perfect example. I mean, Pippen was great, and. Uh, uh, what was what's his name? Uh, the crazy fella, Dennis Rodman. Rodman. Right, yeah. Rodman was a, an incredible force to be reckoned with. But the truth is, you know, Jordan, when it came down to it, could carry the team on his back. 
Yeah, same thing with Kobe a few years ago yes. when they won back-to-back. Oh, back. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like the Kobe teams without Shaq. Right, I love Kobe. <laughs> right. Huge Kobe fan. But No, but he had that ability. Yeah. There's That's the weird thing, and you you know maybe the quarterback in football is the closest that you can get to that, but the idea of keep it within a handful of points to three minutes to play and then let – let him take over whoever you know that may be yeah and it's game over right yeah so i don't know do you think eddie's gonna go to the sunday night game i Ooh, can't that's believe a that I, I good question i'm gonna watch out for that that's the I'm thing to watch, watch the game because yeah. yeah you know my understanding and apple you know one of the things that they've always been pretty secretive about if not totally secretive about is their um uh the process that they go through to rehearse keynotes you know, they just don't talk about it. You know, they've it goes through the weekend though. They'll they're there right now. They'll be there this weekend. Uh, definitely goes through the weekend. But I've heard yeah. stories that there have been times where it goes almost surprisingly late Sunday night, given that you know, uh, you know that it's they're going to be on stage and they want to look fresh. You know, ten o'clock Monday morning. Right, right. I don't know. We'll see uh, if Eddie shows up in his Warriors jersey or not. <laughs> <to the keynote. laughs> well, and I expect that Eddie would have a major role in it because the way that Apple does keynotes is whoever is, I don't know if it's quite the, it, you know, that internal lingo of DRI, but whoever the executive is who's in charge of whatever it is that's being keynoted is the one who presents it. And if, you know, yeah, absolutely. It seems like there might be a big chunk of the keynote that's going to be in Eddie Q's uh, domain. Like what with uh, Eddie Q, there's Apple Music, well, and uh, well, that's about it. Yeah, well, I guess if if it's true that Apple TV isn't uh, making a cut. Yeah, I think that those, I mean, there's three reports on it from three reputable sites, and just in the days before the keynote. So I think that that's probably right, that they, they cut it out. I didn't see three. I saw Brian X. Chen at the New York Times said no new Apple TV hardware. What, what else did you see? Uh, Patchkowski at BuzzFeed oh, corroborated I, that, and then Recode as well, all with a matter of minutes. Huh, I did not see that. So that that's really telling them. I'm surprised you didn't have any take on Chen's report saying that they cut it out in mid-May. Uh, what do you think of that? I, I, that sounds... It's unusual, I think, right. but it sounds about right given that what I had heard... Last I'd heard is it was set for WWDC, but I haven't heard anything. Likewise, in weeks. likewise. I even spoke to someone very reliable after those reports came out, who said that the SDKs and all that they're preparing for Monday still has, or as of that day, still had all the TV uh, kit stuff intertwined in there. So when developers pull the thing apart, I wouldn't be surprised to see some references to that on Monday afternoon or whenever people get their hands on it. Hmm. Well, explain that to me, though. What do you mean by that? So besides the Apple TV hardware, right. they're going to have or they were planning an Apple TV SDK so right. developers could write you know, apps for it. They control from an iPhone or that new controller. But now that you know they're pushing back the hardware, it seems likely that they're probably going to push back the SDK as well. So what I heard was, in terms of this being like a late decision, that the SDK still has the tools 
for developing the Apple TV apps in it. The SDK for iOS 9 that they're going to be releasing. Oh, I see what you mean. iOS 9. I got you, got you. Right. So now I assume, or it could be assumed that they're scrambling to remove that functionality from the build or releasing an older build without it. Mm. So, or just, they just say, screw it and let, let everybody rip it apart Monday afternoon. And so be it. Yeah. We'll see. Cause they know, I mean, there's no, you know, when, when every once in a while, something is left behind in an SDK and it seems pretty clear it's a mistake. Something like right. this would not be a mistake. Something like this would be, right. what are we going to do? Right. Back in the day when I first got my start writing, they would leave stuff back all the time. I remember with the iPad 2, every spec, wallpapers, everything was right and left in the SDK. But they've gotten better over the years. Like the last big leak I remember was the fingerprint sensor in the iOS 8 SDK. But even that was pretty hidden. Yeah. And even every once in a while, it's something like icons or something like that. Right. Right. The icon shows something. Um so why I, I'm I I didn't read Patchkowski. I don't know how I missed it, but what's the what did Patchkowski say about why there's no uh, Apple TV hardware? Um, I don't remember exactly what he said, but something in the lines of it not being ready for prime time or something like that. Yeah, I think that there were some people who were speculating that it was because the TV service, you know, with this idea that they're going to have like you pay $20 a month or well, I don't know, I made the number up, but you pay X dollars right. a month to Apple and then you get a package of 20 or 30 cable channels content. Yeah. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the plan along was to announce the hardware apps SDK in June, right. release it soon after the keynote and then introduce the TV service and say, Hey, you're going to get the hardware now, and then the service will come with a software update in the fall. And I think that was always the plan. And in the meantime, you can still get all of the iTunes content you already can. You can buy episodes, buy the episode, you can rent and buy movies. You know, all the content you already know and love on Apple TV is already there. Exactly. And for their marketing scheme, that would be that would be amazing for them. Totally Apple to have it come out in rollouts and then get all the exposure once again when the new service is ready in the fall. Yeah. So I don't think the two are connected in terms of uh, the WWDC announcement being pushed back. Yeah, I'm I, I, f- I suspect the same thing. I have to say, I, and, and, and I'm not being coy here. I really do know nothing. I, I'm as surprised by this as anybody because I had heard just, you know, little things. And, you know, for months I had heard that, that Apple TV hardware was, was on pace for WWDC along with the SDK, et cetera. Um, I think, though, just my spidey sense about the company is that if they're not announcing it on Monday, that means it's not ready. Right, right. I would agree. Because I think that they probably wanted to ship it just a few weeks or a few months after the WWDC keynote, and they're probably not able to hit that anymore, so they want to just push back the announcement. And maybe they feel like if they wait till the fall to announce it, they can release the hardware like a week and a half later, yeah. you could do it with the iPhones, and have plenty of quantity ready to go. Yeah, yeah. And it might be the sort of thing where, you know, just loosely speaking, I, I have a sense that... Um, I mean, iPhone is still a huge deal for the company. It's the biggest deal financially. But sure. introducing new iPhones is harder and harder to make a big deal out of because it's a well-known product. And so just like my example, like I've said about last year. So 
again, the two most popular iPhones that I've ever introduced, you know, best selling have propelled the company to new heights. But there wasn't that much to say about them. They they were self-explanatory. It's the iPhone you know and love, except now it's thinner and it's bigger or really bigger. Yeah. And it has an uncomfortable camera nubbin. <laughs> yeah, that they hid in the marketing shots right? early so, on. Yeah. So that's why I think that they wanted to pair it with the watch introduction. And the fact that they could throw in Apple Pay in between them as an introduction is icing on the cake. Because then that way they can hold their biggest event of the year, or at least the biggest standalone event, if you don't count WWDC. Um, right. And have big things to announce other than just the iPhone, because it's really, really hard to, I, I think it was, you know, however long Schiller was up there talking about the iPhones, I think it would have re really would have been hard to, for him to go much longer just because right. there's not that much more to say. Right. Um, I agree there. And, so this fall probably, like you said, it would probably, they'll probably double up on the iPhone and TV yeah. in September and maybe have a big iPad event in October with the new Air Mini and the bigger one, the Pro, if that's ready. Yeah. And whatever other, you know, others, you know, but like a smaller event, maybe on campus again. But right, I would expect right. big event September. Here <laughs> we are skipping WWDC and talking about September, but that's what I would think. Yeah. <laughs> But and I think you know if they're thinking, hey, the software's not ready, why release it now? The only reason to do it would be so that they could have whatever they're going to call it, TV kit, whatever you know it's called, TV kit sessions at WWDC. But if they introduce a new W, a, a new developer API outside WWDC in the fall, so be it, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, they've done that before. I mean, they did that with the original iPad. Right. They introduced right. the iPad and said, you've got, you know, four weeks to update your apps to run on it. Go. Right. And I won't be surprised that some big major app partners maybe get the SDK seeded to them in maybe July, August, right. late summer time frame ahead of time. Right. So. All right. So I do think I think, you know, the writing's on the wall that TV is out. Right. 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 Let me take a break and uh, thank the first sponsor this this episode. Uh haven't been here as a sponsor for a while, but they used to be, and I'm delighted to have them back. It's our good friends at Harvest. Harvest is a beautiful, well-designed business tool for tracking time spent on client projects. Uh, started, I believe, I could be wrong, but my recollection is that Harvest started specifically as a, prod, as a product for designers tracking time, and then they've expanded it to be sort of a general-purpose time-tracking tool for anybody with a job where you want to track time. But to me, the best part is that because they started with these designer-focused roots, it really is beautiful. It is a really, really good-looking app and system. Um, so the, it's And it's really, really focused on on being as simple as possible so that it is as easy and you don't even have to think about it to just get started. You just start a timer from anywhere, from your web browser, from a desktop app, your mobile device, they've got apps for everything. Uh, and you just start a timer, say what you're working on. And then when you're done, you hit stop and all of your time is accounted for. So no matter where you find yourself working, you know, your desktop where you've got a big 5k, uh, cinema iMac or in a coffee shop where you're on a different device, you can still use the same system to track all of your time. And it's really, really focused on just making it easy. Then after you've done all the work, your tracked hours appear in visual time reports designed to keep your projects on time and within budget. And you can account for all your time. Your projects are all separated the way you want them to be. 
Uh, and then it's easy to use those reports to see which of your clients and projects are making you the most money and which are the ones that are costing you. Um, so it really helps you to be a more efficient, uh, you know, consultant, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're doing that you're tracking your time with. Um, you can also even create invoices with your billable hours right from a harvest. So you can track your time, report your time, and then even invoice so it all from the same system. So here's where you go to find out more. Go to getharvest.com, getharvest.com, and use this coupon code, the talk show, all one word, and you'll get a 30 day free trial and you'll save 50% on your first month. So use the code, the talk show, 30 day free trial, 50% off your first month. All right. What else we got next week? Obvious stuff. Now, here's the stuff that's no surprise, just in broad strokes. New version of iOS, going to be called iOS 9, and a new version of OS 10, 10.11. Right. So what's the OS 10 name? You got last year, Yosemite. <sighs> you know, what's your take this year? Ha, you know what? So I, I mean, I, in, in the spirit of openness, I will tell you, uh, Yosemite was a complete guess on my part. Honest to God, nobody, nobody from Apple, nobody ever said, I, you know, hey, it's called Yosemite. It did make a lot of sense. Well, my thought Mm -hmm. was Mavericks gave away that they're the type of place they're looking for, like a nature, you know, big scenic type thing. I knew that it was going to be the the version that has the big UI overhaul, which at least, you know, in marketing terms means it's a big OS update. Sure. Because it looks new. And so Yosemite to me was the, it's the big obvious one, sort of like uh, with the cat names, the way that like Lion was a big one that they were waiting for. Tiger was, you know, Tiger and Lion were the two big ones. Yep. Uh, so I just guessed Yosemite. I have no idea this year because I, I really, I, I don't, I'm not even that familiar with, with California's, you know, natural park system or, or <laughs> beaches. So I, no guess this year. Okay. Um, hmm. Do you have a guess? Big Sur, maybe yeah. Big Sur, or see, El Cap, that's like a part of Yosemite, right? I'm not too caught up in the geography either. Yeah, I think it is. Right. And so this update from what I'm hearing is not going to be a huge update functionality-wise or user interface-wise. So maybe going with OS X El Cap, kind of like build off of that Yosemite name could make sense. Ooh, that's a good guess. I've heard the same thing. And it's not just, I know you've reported this, but I've, I've sure. heard, and especially, and we, we, we should definitely talk, we, we can tie this in together, but sure. um, I think you've, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you've reported that in both cases with both OSs, there's more of a emphasis on, on, cleaning up the edge cases and the details and bug fixes and refinements, you know, not quite Mm -hmm. as, as drastic maybe as snow leopard was, but that sort of OS update. But I think it's deaf from what I've heard, that's more the case with OS 10 than with iOS. Yep. I heard the exact same thing. So uh, on iOS, it's kind of like meeting in the middle, maybe with a snow leopard and like a standard annual upgrade. So they're really focusing on making sure it works well through the QA processes and performance and efficiency wise, but also adding new features. But on OS 10, the only user facing new feature I've heard about is control center. Hmm. Interesting. I, I don't, I actually don't know of anything, um, 
Yeah, I don't know of anything. And I only yeah. know about Control Center because of you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like a lot of little things that they'll have on OS X. Like we talked about uh, San Francisco for the font. Yeah. Uh, have you heard that as well, by the way? Yeah, I have. Okay. And cool. I've spoken yeah. to people who've seen it on iOS 9. I don't know of anybody who's seen it on OS 10. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you can speak to this too, but it's not the exact same San Francisco as on the Apple Watch. It's nope. kind of a little bit more curved. Yeah. Maybe like the activity app that is on the iPhone right now. Well, I don't know the details of exactly what changes they made, but I am absolutely positively convinced that it's not the same um, digitized version that's on the watch. Right. Because if you ran that hack that came out last year that let you um, – I didn't. I don't think that anybody. I don't, I don't know. I don't have a jailbroken device, so I couldn't try it on iOS nine. But I know on OS ten, there was a thing on GitHub. You download the the version of the font from Apple with a developer account, and you run a little script, and it makes a version of the font that if you put it in system library fonts, and when you reboot your Mac, it'll use that instead of the system's version of Helvetica Noia. Um, and it didn't look bad, but it didn't look right. You kind of shifted off a little bit. It screwed with the menu bar. So yeah, and yeah. It just just in terms of being like a, a a person who's super finicky and about typography, it just didn't have the right feel to it. Like right. it's just a, a feel of it thing, not a think of it thing. Not there's no real way to put it in words. And I think the reason why is that the version of San Francisco that Apple crafted for the watch is shockingly designed to look best at the tiny little sizes that you see it on the watch. Surprising, right? <laughs> right. Which are way smaller than than the what the 16 point font that you see in the menu bar on the Mac. Yeah. Um so that you know, it, it's just like a lot of modern day digital fonts, it's you know, different optical sizes have different kerning and different details to certain of the glyphs. Right. And I think you touched upon this in an earlier podcast. I think maybe it was with Dan from or something. They kind of, you said, I think is you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that they're maybe partially doing this because they want to own the whole experience yeah. and not have to license a font from other providers. Well, but, they're yeah. still going to have that font, so they still have to license it. There's no way right. they're getting rid of Helvetica. Uh, but this way they have a look that can't be copied. Okay, right. Yeah, that's you what, know what I mean. Said. So like HTC has used Helvetica Noia for years yep. in, in like their custom skin for Android, uh, you know, and honestly, it makes their, you know, like their lock screen look a lot better than the other Android devices. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good font, but, it, but this will put like uh, similarity across Apple's platforms. It's good marketing yeah. wise. You know, they did the whole revamp of the OS in 13 for iOS 7 and last year for the Mac. I think changing up the font a little bit keeps everything fresh. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's been uh, other people have written about it in, in detail, but Helvetica is a, uh, it's almost hard to talk about it because it's so it's a ubiquitous font, but mm -hmm. it's not that perfectly suited as a UI font. And a user interface font has to, meaning the font for things like the labels on buttons, the menus, you know, the the Chrome of the OS as opposed to the content within it. It's just not that great for it. It's not really a great font for that. It's not bad, and it looks better on Retina screens than uh, Lucida Grand did. 
Yeah, Absolutely. Great. Yeah. But San Francisco does. There's, it's sort of like being a little bit more industrial and a little bit more sturdy where it's, you wouldn't want to read long passages. I, I, I'm suspecting, um, for example, like when you open mail, you're still going to see the contents of your messages in Helvetica Noia. It's the labels and the Chrome of the OS that'll be San Francisco. I could be wrong. Maybe they'll, oh, they'll really? go to, maybe they'll go to San Francisco for content as well. Although I, I'd be really surprised if they did that on the Mac. It's going to be interesting to see if third-party developers come out with lots of updates to support San Francisco now, like there were all sorts of retina display and touch ID API updates over the years, whenever they... Well, you should, it should just happen automatically because what they should be doing in the user interface is not specifying Helvetica Noia, but specifying system font. Right, right. But not all developers do that, especially the custom graphics ones. No, but I've heard, I've heard the same thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so tell me what you know about Control Center for OS X. So before Yosemite came out, they were like the internal builds for Apple employees. If you swiped on the left side of your trackpad, like the exact opposite for how you open Notification Center, Control Center would come out and it would actually move some of the menu bar to the side. So the About This Mac, Wi-Fi controls, volume controls, uh, I think some battery indicator things to access system preferences more quickly. Uh, brightness, music controls, similar to how it is on iOS, Bluetooth. Um, Maybe they'll replicate the menu bar, but not remove the menu bar. So you can access it on either side, or maybe they'll just won't ship it with control center altogether, but it's basically what you'd think it would be. Yeah. I, I think that part of it is where whenever Apple comes up with something new, it always helps me to think, just take a big step back and just think, well, why? And I, one thing I could think of when I read that is all these tiny little icons in the menu bar have always been, to me, a bit of a hack, user interface-wise. <laughs> like, the thing that makes sense in the menu bar are just the menus. File, edit, view, history, bookmarks. You can see I'm in Safari. Right. Um, those little status things have never really felt at home up there. And I know why they're there. It's because you want them to be accessible quickly. Like, here, quick, how do I turn my sound down? Okay, I'll go up there to this speaker thing and drag a menu down. But it's never really felt right to me. I don't know how to say it. Semantically, grammatically, in terms of the the user interface. And there was a time, I don't know if you remember this, there was a time in the early days of OS X where they were like, I'm going to... I don't remember the names, but there were two ways to write those menu things. And there was one that was using a private API and Apple used it and another using the, the public API and, you know, developers, but they wanted the, to do the extra stuff the private API could do. So they used that one and, you know, all sorts of uh, ugliness ensued. Do you think they'll offer a way for developers to tap into control center on the Mac? Even though yeah. they don't. Yeah. I do. I think if they come out with it, they definitely would in the same way that they, you know, have with the like today widgets. Right. Uh, so there's no control. Oh, sorry. As well, especially on the Mac, I think they're way more right. likely to give developers access to new things like that on the Mac than they are on iOS. Right. Because iOS control center is not, it's not really touchable. No, but I think that they would. And I think the reason that they would is I think going all the way back to Mac OS 10.0, way back when, you know, when you were like two years old, 
<laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, I don't think Apple has ever liked the idea of third parties putting stuff up in the menu bar, the little icon menus. Just yeah. as, you know, just like it's just a little bit gross. And it kind of looks terrible, too, just as an eyesore when they were doing the retina transition. Some of those icons weren't retina yet. So you'd have like a retina Apple one and then a third party that's all pixelated. Right. Yeah, and what's gross. and what's the what is the highest profile piece of hardware that Apple has released so far this year? Of course, the uh, the Mark Gurman MacBook. Yeah, the Mark Gurman MacBook. And yeah. guess what? The Mark Gurman MacBook has a very small screen. Yep. <laughs> and those icons run up against the side of uh, the app. You know, it's very, very easy to have so many icons up there that an app with a lot of menus like Xcode or something like that, that they run into each other. That's a good point. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they'll move it on the iPad, too, because on the iPad, you swipe up for it. What if they move it to the side on that as well? Hmm. I don't think so. I uh, No, I don't think so, because I think the iPad follows the iPhone and the phone you know, it really needs to come up from the bottom, not from the side. Sure, sure. Like, I feel like with the iPad, if the iPad lived in its own universe, it wouldn't make much difference whether it was a thing from the side or a thing from the bottom. But because it's like, it's really just a big iPhone, it's got to come up from the bottom. Mm, yeah. I think the only things that Apple likes up there is the status stuff. The right, time, like the time. The battery uh, and, you know, the spotlight and... Uh, what do you call it? What's the notification no- center? Yeah. You know, notification the spotlight center. icon being there is interesting because when they came out with spotlight with tiger up through, uh, whatever was before Yosemite and Mavericks, you would have a little pop out in the top right corner, but now mm. you're clicking this magnifying glass in the top right corner, but the text field pops up in the middle of the screen. So that doesn't make much sense. Yeah. You're actually right now that I think about it. So maybe they'll get rid of that entirely and just tell people to do the uh, the command spacebar. Right. And if you're the sort of person who doesn't think about using a command line thing, then Spotlight's not for you anyway. Maybe. Exactly. maybe. Or maybe it moves to the dock. Yeah. You know, they have the uh, icon for Spotlight in the file system anyways. They always have. So right. maybe or a quick mouse to the corner hot shortcut or something. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good point. Um, yeah, I haven't heard anything else about OS 10. I think that, um, there probably has got to be a few things, you know, I, I do expect, I just think that there's got to be a few things, but I do think that it's a lot more like a snow leopard style release. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I heard there's a big focus on security with this new feature called rootless, which sort of blocks the file system from being as accessible as it is now. The finder won't go away. People will still be able to get into the file system, but like the root directories and such will be will be hidden. Yeah, that's a good. It's an interesting feature, and that's in uh, to my knowledge, it's entirely a, a German scoop. And you know, everything I've ever seen about it, uh, it ultimately, it's somewhere at the bottom of the article says, as first reported by Mark German at Nine to Five Mac. Yeah, it might be more of an iOS thing because it was designed initially to sort of break jailbreaks in the future from people 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 being able to tap deep into the system hmm. but there's some ways to apply it to the mac as well hmm. yeah i can see it and i think it ties into um you know obviously it's you first think of it as a security feature but i think apple more and more sees 
security and privacy is being intertwined and that mm. it's 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 the sort of doubling down on features like this has as much to do with their their stance on privacy as it does on any sort of just the the general principle that you want your OS to be secure Right. And it also goes back to the big picture stuff of a bigger quality stability focus, not letting people tap into the core parts of the system will likely keep the OS stabler overall. Yeah. The privacy thing is a good point because there's been a lot of talk about a Siri API. Mm. And I know, and I'm sure you heard this as well, that at some point they were considering a full-fledged way for developers to tap into Siri. Yes. But from what I understand, they keep holding back on that because they're concerned about the privacy implications. So let's say you give a command to Siri and you're trying to tap into Yelp, but what if Siri misinterprets what you said and sends your data to uh, another app, a Google app or a Shazam or something like that? So they're concerned that Siri might send data to the wrong place because it misinterprets what you said. So mm. Yeah, I can see that. That's um, an interesting thing. Or I, I just off the top of my head that if they opened it up to third parties, um, even if they made it, and I suspect that they would, I suspect that a, a Mac, well, I on iOS, it would definitely, you know, everything goes through the app store. But even if they did it on a Mac, which doesn't really have proper Siri yet anyway, but right. if they if they did, I would see them as doing it only for Mac App Store apps because I think mm. they would want to approve the apps because they wouldn't want it used in any context where what you might be saying to Siri is stuff that Apple does not want going to their servers for whatever reason. I'm not, you know, no, that makes in, a lot of sense. Yeah, read into that what you will, but I don't think that they want you saying, you know, they don't want you even some. I'm not even, you know, there's you know porno or you know pirating movies or something like that any sorts of stuff that they might not want to be involved with but even something like that that on the surface is on the up and up like a medical records app they're not going to want you but on the other hand i guess they still allow it for dictation and that stuff still round trips to the servers so i don't know right i don't know all i know is that uh, the the privacy thing is uh, from everything i've heard is super 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 top priority across yeah. the company it's legit it's not like a marketing thing it's no. it's what they really actually focus on you can't say that for everything they do but this is right. this is a real this is a real concern for them i do think they will do something not a full-fledged Siri api but that deep linking app indexing feature that google announced a couple mm. weeks ago i think that's gonna be in ios 9 it's uh under the code name breadcrumbs which kind of is like leading a trail of your app to be able to be indexed by siri and spotlight hmm. so something a little smaller scale hmm. yeah i could see that and it sure would be good if you could um you know uh, like if you use things you know and that you could say hey siri tell things to add blah 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 to my next up list right and have that parse correctly and i know things maybe is a bad example because i know things like a bunch of to-do apps can integrate with your system-wide reminders list just yeah, to get stuff into your inbox but there's no way to do like a custom just it, it only makes sense in the context of this app siri input right and they kind of hacked it like i know i use things in their settings they 
they talk about like reminders plus Siri and integrating that with Thing. So they recognize that. And I think a few right. other apps as well have. Right. And, uh, you know, there's just all sorts of apps where, where Siri specific input, like if Siri could be as smart about a third party app as it is about some of the built in stuff, it would be great. Right. Um, well, hold on. And then let's talk about what's coming. Let's up next. Remind me, we'll talk about what, what we think is coming up or what, you know, is coming up next in iOS nine, but let me take a second break here and thank, uh, our next sponsor, these guys were here last week. They're back again. Our good friends at MailRoute, M-A-I-L-R-O-U-T-E. Um, here's their pitch. You know who should be handling your email? Email nerds who do nothing but email. These guys at MailRoute, that's all they do. They created the first cloud-based email filtering solution, and then they sold it to Microsoft. Now they're back with MailRoute. They've been there for a couple of years. Uh, and it's such a simple, beautiful pitch. It's just super effective spam and virus filtering for your own email that you host yourself. So imagine a world with no spam, no viruses, no bounce mail. That's what it's like with MailRoute. They don't host your email. You have your own domain, you run your own mail server, or you have, you know, you go to somebody like FastMail or something like that where you have email that's under your own control. Uh, what you do, but you have your own domain name. What you do is you point your MX records at MailRoute, and then your mail goes through their filters first, and then whatever passes through their filters goes on to your mail server. Just a little front end, just like think of it as like a screen in the window in between the outside world and your mail server. And it can make a tremendous, tremendous difference in the amount of spam that gets through. Super accurate on both sides, Super low for false positives, super low false negatives. I don't even know how they do it. I don't know how their their spam filtering is as accurate as it is. Um, they have a great feature, so everybody, every every email account in under your control can get a uh, quarantine report on a regular basis. And what that means is you get an email from MailRoute in your inbox that would just say, "Here's the emails that we were sort of like maybe on." And you can look through that list. And instead of looking through like 5,000, I've got, I've got an email address over here. I swear to God. And it's not on a, in front of mail route, although I should, I just don't use this domain that much anymore. It has over 5,000 spams in the inbox right now. I know that they're all almost all spam. Uh, it's an address that I've used like just for ordering stuff online in the past. Uh, MailRoute can filter all that crap out, but then you can get a report, this quarantine report, and it'll say, here's seven that we were like a maybe on. Like these aren't, we're not really sure. Eyeball that list. If you see one that actually wasn't spam, you're like two clicks away from whitelisting that, and then it'll never get flagged again. But that way you don't have to go through all 5,000 emails that they did flag as spam and look for the false positives. They give you this quarantine list that is great. It just, it just gives you the ones that they were like maybe on. Uh, and there's very few of those. Super easy to set up, super reliable. And because you're just pointing, you're just redirecting your MX record to go to mail route first, then onto your server. It's so easy to try. And if you don't like it, although I can't imagine why that would be, I've never heard of anybody who's tried it and not stuck with it because it's so accurate. But if, if that's the case, all you have to do is change your MX record back. You don't have to change your email settings on your phone and on your laptop and on your thing. You don't have to copy your mail from, 
you know, these big, huge gigabyte archives of your old, old mail from one server to another. You're just changing your MX record. So it's super, super easy. Um, if you're an IT pro, they've got all sorts of APIs and tools, you know, that anything you'd want to do if you're like an email admin, super, super advanced. But if you just want to hook it up and have it filter out all the junk, it's so easy to do. Um, they've got all sorts of other stuff, LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging. I don't even know what that is. Outbound relay, anything you want from people handling your mail, mail route handles it. They've got great customer support. Really, really great. So here's what you do. Go to mailroute.net, mailroute.net slash TTS, TTS for the talk show, and you'll get a free trial. And then when you sign up to pay, you get 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Mailroute.net slash TTS. My thanks to Mailroute. Great service. Do you get spam? Me? Uh, all the time. Probably like a <laughs> hundred of them a day. I, I sometimes I think about email. It's like, can you even imagine anybody setting up a new service today where it was like, you have a public address and anybody else on the entire internet can just send stuff to you? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, I hardly read email seriously anymore. Like I go through it every morning when I wake up on my phone and I'm basically selecting all most of the time, looking out for names I recognize or important domains and such but otherwise it's it's spam <laughs> yeah it's it's so crazy john syracuse and merlin mann uh have a new podcast and they were talking about syracuse was talking about being in college in the 90s he was a little bit younger than me but at his college to get on the internet before they had it and even like you know like ethernet connections in the dorm rooms he'd go to the lab and there were these vt100 terminals so do you ever you ever see those they're really it was just you know what you think of the terminal app it was a computer that that's all it was was a terminal. yeah sure but they those didn't all, have email <laughs> you know, well you'd log in though and then you'd get your email you'd get your mail on you know using like elm or pine or one of those apps um but the the fact was like that and i remember this it was the same way at drexel where i went where the terminals themselves were world writable so if you knew the terminal name next to you, you could just write characters to the screen of that terminal. Oh, wow. And, it, you know, <laughs> so it was a great way to prank people in the lab because the assumption <laughs> was it's like the entire early Internet was sort of like built on academic rules. Like, why would anybody do that? This is, you know, we're all in this together sort of thinking. Yeah. It's kind of like iCloud, but vintage. Right. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, it's <laughs> it just was crazy. And email is like this bizarre holdover from that, that system. Yeah. It's amazing to me that Apple isn't playing in that email space. You see Dropbox trying it, Facebook with their messaging, uh, and all that. And iCloud email and the mail apps on iOS and OS 10 are basically just like how, like how email was handled five, 10 years ago. I really think that if anyone would to, you know, come in here and innovate in some way in the email space, it could be Apple. But here they are doing nothing, at least publicly. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. But presumably, in the same way that anybody who can iMessage each other, if if they came out with their own Apple-specific, Apple-to-Apple email 2.0 type thing, you know, just as many people who can get blue bubbles with each other in iMessage could send, you know, some kind of new email type thing to each other. Or maybe they'll just, you know, beef up iMessage and try to make email go away. Yeah, you I know? almost feel like that would be the way that they would go. Yeah, probably. Because they just, it would be easier for them to 
put it all in one, or maybe not easier. That seems like the more Apple way. Yeah. Like Mail's legacy and iMessage is, is the new thing. Yeah. I wonder how much... Uh I wonder how much of their communication takes place on iMessage internally now. Because I know it used to be, they you know, probably still are, but I know they used to be an incredibly email-reliant uh, company, that they didn't really have any kind of complex, uh, I don't know even what you would call it, internet-style messaging type thing that, you know, most communication within the company took place by email. Yeah, they probably use Slack these days. Like everyone else. <laughs> well, they definitely have some teams on Slack. Because remember when there was that, uh, there was a, a thing where you could type in a domain name and and see how many people, you know, how many Slack teams were registered for that domain? Ah, yeah. And, and it was, the idea was Slack added the feature to make it easy for you to connect, you know, like if, uh, I, th I think it was like you would type in like at nine to five Mac.com and then it would like help, you know, trying to help you, it would be like, ah, here's the teams for your organization. Which one do you want to join? But that meant though, that you could just take a guess and type in at Microsoft.com and it would like tell you, here's all the teams from your company that are in Slack. Oh, wow. I wish I knew that. <laughs> Probably could have figured out that they had a car team. Yeah, I want, no, I don't think, I don't think there was anything. I don't recall anything. Yeah. I don't think there was anything that uh, was telling. I think they were kind of smart about it, but it was, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kidding. But I'll try to look it up for the show notes. That's a big, I can't believe Slack even thought that would be an even half good idea to launch something like that publicly. Well, you know what, though? It's exactly like, it's that it is. You're right. And I'm sure that they were slapping themselves on the forehead over it. But it's like when you are a good person and you're just trying to help somebody, it is right. easy. It's so easy to overlook the, you know, well, what if you're a jerk? Right. Right. That yeah. I, I, Somebody wrote an article a while ago that everybody needs like a like a chief jerk officer like, who <laughs> looks at everything and just says, OK, but what if I'm a jerk? Right. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so iOS 9. Yeah. Here's where there's a lot more action going on. Right. So what do we know? We know San Francisco. Right. We know that user interface-wise, besides the font, it's going to look pretty much the same. I heard some new splash of colors, color changes on some icons, some user interface elements. But if you didn't know the difference between Helvetica and San Francisco, you'd think it would be iOS 8. <laughs> Yeah, um, what else that. do we know? We know about Maps. Maps is getting a big upgrade. So Transit, finally. They wanted that out the door last year. And uh, I guess they're ready now. But it's only going to be in a handful of cities. So San Francisco, New York, Toronto, London, uh, Berlin, Paris. And they want Boston and Tokyo by the end of the year. Also, they're going to have China at launch. Sort of a small-scale rollout, yeah. but, uh, but at least I'm, they're starting. Uh, the funny thing, though, about hitting those cities is that, yes, it sounds like a short list of cities. And it's, you know, uh, clearly they are behind Google on this regard because Google has transit information all over the world. But if you can get, like, the top 10 cities, you you hit an enormous number of the people who need the transit information because they're so population dense. Right. And I think they're going to move quickly on this because I know that this new version is going to have a notification system that you can 
be alerted when transit arrives in your city. So mm. they're planning on updating this frequently over the year. And they have a whole roadmap of where they want to hit at what times in the future. Right. Like the big thing is having transit is a, a, the architecture for transit in general in right. the OS. And then after that, they can do over the air updates, you know, iOS 9.1 or even 9.02 or something like that. And it adds, you know, new cities around the world. Right. Or even over the air without a software update, just through the backend infrastructure. Right. Maybe. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if that's the case. Right. But I mean, if you were to say three cities in, in North America, that if you can only hit three, I think they got those three. Uh, yeah. Which ones would you say? New York, San Chicago, Francisco, or maybe Chicago. Yeah. But are you thinking it? Los Angeles. What were you thinking? You know, Los Angeles, because when I asked whoever I was talking to there, Los Angeles is actually extremely and surprisingly low on the uh, on the list of where yeah. they want to hit. But Los Angeles is a driving city, anyways. Right. That's exactly but, why I wasn't uh, why yeah. I put Chicago above it. Yeah, I didn't even think of Chicago, but they got Toronto, San Francisco, New York, and yeah. maybe Chicago later. We'll see. Yeah, and I know Boston has a great infrastructure for it like I, philadelphia is a weird city for it i don't i know that there's some information our public transportation organization is called septa southeast pennsylvania transportation authority um but i think that there's really behind a lot of the other cities like the when i was visiting friends in boston last year like you you could it says like hey your bus is coming in 45 seconds and like your bus is coming in 45 seconds oh. um Maybe that's why Boston's not ready, because they want to integrate that functionality. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why Boston... Maybe I think maybe it still goes by by population, though. I mean... I don't know. I know they really wanted Boston. It just wasn't ready. Yeah. No, I don't know. And, you know, I think all these APIs are different, you know, and all the different... Or, you know... I, I've from what I've read about it, that there's no, like, unifying standard. And that one of the reasons that... Google has had a years long lead at this is that Google, this is the sort of thing Google is good at. And if every single city reports this transportation information in a different way, Google's really good at saying that's okay. We'll make sense of it. Yeah. yeah. Even if it's not like uniform, I would guess that Apple could take, if they only did two cities, San Francisco and New York, it would, it would hit an awful lot of the usage. Right. And the entirety of China. So right, that's a big one there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I so, would guess China it might even be more important. I think China that the number of people who take public transportation's got to be insane. Yeah, but the interesting thing about China is that there's some legal government monopoly on Alibaba who owns Autonavi. Hmm. So Apple is not allowed to do their own transit data collection in China. So they've actually, you know, struck a deal with Alibaba to get the uh the data from them for China. Hmm. I wonder what the difference will be. Yeah, I don't know. Probably reliability. Yeah. Um, anything else for maps? Yeah. So those vans that they've been driving around are for a few things. One, they're redoing their entire base map, the geography fundamentals of the map app, and they're wanting to launch that by 2017 or 18. So the trucks are doing verification on, on that data. But they're also taking pictures of storefronts. So a lot of people thought these were street view cameras, like what Google does, and they do collect data like that for 3D stuff that they're going to do in the future. But the more short-term thing is taking pictures of like a Chipotle or a storefront for an office to replace Yelp. Hmm. So right now, when you go into a place in the Maps app, 
let's say you go to a restaurant, it'll show you a picture of a menu item at the top taken by someone who uploaded it to Yelp. And a lot of times those pictures are very poor quality. <laughs> so Apple stepping back and saying, hey, we want to do this ourselves. So they're taking stills of storefronts. And the plan was to start rolling that out with iOS 9. But it's more of a long-term initiative, so it might not be ready yet. Hmm. And there's also um, a browse around me feature. So let's say you're standing on a street and you want to see a curated list of great places to go around you. So it's kind of like the app around me, and it'll show you like a list of, of the best cafes, the best uh, whatever around you, best cell phone store. Um, and they've also been testing that with an augmented reality view. So you can wave your phone around and see uh, through the phone's camera lens the stuff around you, kind of like Yelp tested a feature like this a few years ago. Google had something like this. Uh, not sure if that's ready, but those are some things they've been testing. Hmm. Very interesting. I do think with some of the mapping stuff, it's understandable that they're still behind Google just because Google had a lead. And I right. I do think that they've sort of, uh, that they're roughly keeping pace. Like, I don't think they're, I my gut feeling is that they're closer than they were. I mean, when, when Apple Maps debuted infamously, it was, you know, one of the worst received product rollouts in recent memory from Apple. Um. I think since then, even if you don't count that first version, even if you fast forward a year, I still think that in the time since then, they've caught up more to Google than Google has pulled further ahead. And I think that's just the way it is when you're behind. That's fair. Yeah. But, but here's my problem with that. My problem is that only now they're starting their own data collection to release a more reliable version three, four years from now. Instead of going to TomTom Tom and those other data sources back whenever they started this project in 2010, 2011, before the fall of 2012 launch, instead of going to them, why didn't Apple start their own data collection you know, process at the very beginning? That's what I don't get. Yeah, and I would broaden it a little bit and just say that, and again, I do think that they've gotten better. I use Apple Maps, and I know with Topolsky on his show, he was, he was like laughed at me and said, nobody uses Apple Maps. But that's not true. If you look at the stats, like iPhone users overwhelmingly use Apple Maps. It's, yeah. you know, they use, I use it. it. Yeah. They use it way more than Google Maps. And I, I've had some really good experiences with it. But the thing that gets me is it seems like some of the stuff that they've done, it, it could be expressed as that they've cheaped out. Like, why not just like you, you know, like you said, why not start collecting the money? Like some of this is just sort of a manpower issue. Like Google Street View is a pretty cool feature. But among many things that Google does, it to me is like it's not the most technically impressive. To me, it's like manpower impressive that they've sent so many cars out with so many teams to take so many pictures all around the world. It's just like it, it's like how many companies have the resources to do that? Well, guess what? Apple is a company that has, you know, it's a, it to me seems like a problem that you can solve by throwing money at it. Absolutely. And who has more money than Apple? They right. should have started throwing money at this uh, a, a bit longer ago. So. And the, the, and again, I, I, whenever this comes up on the show, I always preface it by saying it is so much easier to spend somebody else's money than your own. So every time I advocate <laughs> Apple spending money, yes, I understand. Um, and that the way that you build, a massive war chest of money like they have is by not spending money frivolously. But yeah. that said, why not buy every mapping company with decent 
you know, why not buy as many of them as they can, or at least more than they have? Why not buy TomTom, whatever it costs? Because surely whatever it would cost would be affordable to Apple. Right. I mean, I know they looked at more than they that they bought. They looked at Foursquare for sure. Yeah. They looked at they looked at Yelp or a deeper partnership with Yelp. But I guess they felt they could do it better than their own, better on their own. And what's the point of buying TomTom if you can have a cheaper partnership with them anyways? I guess, but on the other I don't know. It just in the back of my head, it just seems to me like that they yes, there's engineering problems, but th- that some of the stuff with maps could have been accelerated by throwing money at it. And again, one thing is just putting manpower out there, you know, and having more, you know, more of these teams with these goofy looking vans covered with cameras out in the street. Right. What what they seem to be doing with these acquisitions is buying maps related technology and resource and science companies from that instead of buying data companies. So TomTom's a data company. So is Foursquare and Yelp. But they bought all those transit apps who came up with like trip planning features and all that. They bought SpotSetter, which didn't provide data, but it sort of aggregated points of interest what they'll be using for that other maps feature we talked about. So they're sort of buying the means to build the data themselves. Right. And they bought the company that had the thing that they used for the 3D view. Right, C three technologies. Back right, then. and I think that at the time that their their lib- you know, it took Apple's acquisition of them for them to really beef up the uh, the amount of imaging that they had. But it was so it was it yes, they had some, but it was mostly a technology acquisition, not a data acquisition. Well, they bought C three uh, before the maps came out, so they bought C three in two thousand eleven. Right. Maps was in 2012, but I guess it wouldn't have been as good without them. Right. I don't know if you remember during like the beta period for iOS 6, they stripped all the 3D from one of the betas, and then the next release, all the 3D stuff came back, and it was 10 times better than it was before. So, hmm. no, I don't some, remember that. Something probably fixed in the middle there. I do remember that it was a major part of Forstall's demo of it when he unveiled it. Right. The iPhone 5 event right. and the WWDC. Right. Yeah. That was also his fall, so <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit. Well, I, you know, I, I might might have been the straw that broke the camel's back is yeah. one way to look at it. Sure, I think that even if maps, I suspect though, my hunch is in the alternate universe where maps had a let's say lukewarm response because I think that was the best they were going to do. There was no way right. that they were going to. It's just not feasible to come out of the gate with a with a a. a complete peer to Google Maps. But they had to make the switch because of contract reasons that they just couldn't, They or they did not want to give Google another year and what Google was asking for them, you know, was more than they wanted to give and they wanted things like turn-by-turn directions. So they needed to just rip the Band-Aid off and do it. Even if it had been a better launch, like, hey, this is about as good as we could have done the first time. I still think Forstall would have been gone when he was gone. Oh yeah, I agree. But I think that, you know, it didn't help. I don't think it helped anybody. No. no. <laughs> uh, what else in Mac or not Mac OS, iOS 9? iOS 9. So we talked about San Francisco, transit. Um, oh, the proactive stuff. So last year's big term was continuity, right? Right. This year, the big term. Now, I don't know if this expands marketing wise, but internally, 
is something called proactive, and that maps browse around me features one component, but another component. Now I don't know if this is 100% a lock for next week, but they have been working on this with the intention back whenever they were working on this for iOS 9. So I just want to preface by saying that, but it's an entirely new spotlight. And instead of pulling down on the home screen, you swipe to the right to open the new screen on the left, kind of like how you open Spotlight pre-iOS 7. Yeah, I, I, when I read this on your site, I misread it at first, and I didn't get it, and now I get it. It's sort of like, to me, it's like home screen zero. Like, if you yes. count your first home screen as home screen one, now there's one at position zero to the left. Right, and I called it a layer in my story, and that probably was not a good way to reference it. Yeah. Probably better would have been uh, the first home screen. But it's part of the OS, and at the top, there's like the spotlight search bar that you have now. But beneath that is a bunch of timely functionality similar to Google Now. So your next calendar appointments, if you have an appointment at the airport, you're going on a flight, the passbook card for the airline ticket could appear. If I call you, John, uh, every day at 5.30 p.m., a bubble could pop up saying it's time to call John, or if it's 1 p.m. and it's lunchtime, another bubble with local restaurants around my location could pop up. So stuff of that nature. Right. But that's where you'll go if you know that you want to launch this app and you don't know which home screen it's on. Instead of doing the pull down thing, you go over there to home screen zero and start typing the name of the app. Right. right. So, yep. That, yeah. There's that too, but there also will be, yeah, it's kind of like when you type in uh, like a, a search term now, it'll show you like Wikipedia or yeah. other stuff like that. Yeah. So if you were to type in, you know, like call or food or calendar or whatever, those yeah. relevant search results could pop up or yeah. they could just be there waiting for you. It's to be seen what they do. Yeah. But it's a big emphasis on redoing Spotlight for yeah. more contextual features. Yeah, I forget if we talked about, I think I was with Renee last week where we talked about this, but the one th reason that to me it makes a lot of sense is that just from a basic, uh, I don't even know what you want to call it, just a common sense user interface design thing. The way it is now and the way it has been since iOS 7 doesn't make a lot of sense to me because if you pull down from the edge, you get notification center and today view. But if you yep. pull down in the middle, then you get the spotlight search. And to me, that pull down from two different places and you get two entirely different things is it's just a bad idea. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. So give it its own side. And then all of a sudden to me, it makes a lot more sense. Right. And with the new functionality. So I think that if this isn't, does indeed launch next week, it will be the highlight of iOS nine. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. And that would be a good place too, where, where who knows if they have any new partnerships to announce, you know, from other third parties that, that, you know, that could sneak into those results. Right. Have you seen the app Q that Apple acquired a couple of years ago? Uh, only I think through your report, but yeah, that's, and so it's spelled it's based like, on that. like Eddie's last name. See, yeah, C -U that's why he bought it. He wanted the domain name. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to clarify though, that it's not Q U E U E. Right, right, right. C U E. Maybe they bought it for trademark purposes right. too. So what, well, what's the Q app? The Q app is basically uh, a list of things in your day based on your calendar. So 
basically what I explained, kind of like Google Now. So you have a Facebook event coming up or a calendar event that you're going on a flight or you want to pull up the airline ticket or restaurants, cafes and or offices or stores around you uh, type of deal. Also local events or let's say in my calendar I have podcasts with John at uh, 1.30 p.m. Around 1.30 p.m., I'll get a, a bubble saying podcast with John. It'll show me your contact and phone number uh, and maybe emails related to it as well. It's very contact, app, email, and maps oriented. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I That sounds right to me. And it's, it, you know, let's face it. A lot of this stuff is it's no surprise that. Uh, iOS and Android are sort of coalescing around the same ideas. And, you know, I think in terms of UI niceness, uh, iOS was way out ahead. And in terms of this sort of context about your life sensibility, Google was obviously ahead and is ahead. And so they're both playing catch up in each other's areas. And so it's no surprise to me that, and I, you know, I didn't even make hay about it. I pointed it out, but I, you know, to me, it's no surprise that the new copy and paste UI in Android M is really, it's just their version of the iOS copy and paste system. They tried their own thing with these inscrutable icons at the top of the thing, as opposed to putting it right above the selection. I think maybe they were trying to do the noble thing and come up with their own UI. And you know what? There's, you know, the bottom line is low these five, six years since iOS had copy and paste later. It's pretty clear this is the way to do it on a touchscreen. And now they're doing it. And I think that this sort of, look, your phone should know if you have a flight. And ideally, it should know if traffic is bad between where you are right now and the airport where you're going. Like, and all that stuff will be there. So. Right. Like, this is yeah. not super advanced AI. Like, no. you you know, you're in centers, you know, me, I'm in Center City, Philadelphia. I have a flight today at five uh, that leaves from the Philadelphia airport. Well, it's not that hard for like the phone to figure out that at some point I'm going to need to leave where I am and get to the airport. And it can check the map and say, wow, traffic is really bad. You should leave earlier than you think. And they've been building up to this for the yeah. last few years anyways, with some of that data that you can see the places you go to often and all yeah. that. Well, I think this ties into another bit of news this week, which is Tim Cook's speech at this epic EPIC dinner where, where, you know, depending on how you want to put it, sort of a scathing critique of, without naming them, I'd say Google and Facebook and yeah. the fact that they sell targeted ads based on what they know about you. Um, and, you know, it's got a lot of coverage, I think deservedly so. I think it's definitely an interesting issue. I think it's one that, that you know, whatever, even if you're all in on the Google platform that you want to be aware of. Um, I do think, I think Ben Thompson had a good piece. It's behind his paywall for his subscribers, but he had a good piece that I would summarize like this, that if Tim Cook's being disingenuous, it is in the way that he's phrasing it. And I think it's a sort of very astute, point from from Ben, which is that Cook is saying that they're selling your information to advertisers. 
And they're not actually. What they're doing is promising advertisers that their ads will go to the people who are interested, but they're not giving that information to the advertisers. So an advertiser who pays for the targeted ad doesn't know a goddamn thing about Mark Gurman. <laughs> right? It's it's because that information is what enables them to sell the ads. They're actually right. they they do collect information about you. They do use that information to make money from advertising, but they're not giving that information to advertisers because it's that, that information that they have that is so valuable that if anything, they might be more motivated to keep your stuff private than Apple is because it's the fact that nobody else knows as much about you as Facebook and or Google in the different ways that they know stuff about you that makes them so valuable. It's actually an interesting point. But on the flip side, and where this ties in with what you and I have just been talking about, is I think some people are overlooking the fact that because Apple doesn't collect this stuff for the purpose of selling you targeted ads, that they're not even in the ball game of like exactly. context sensitive stuff. And I don't think that I think that they're 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 going to be very very surprised by the next year or two from Apple. Yeah, this is a differentiator here. Uh, I agree. Is that it's it's all about the data that Apple already has with from you on the phone, and maybe this will be on the Mac too. They're not really opening this up to third party developers as much as they could, if uh, they they wanted to not care about privacy as much yeah. as they do. I'll I'll re retell an anecdote I told to Topolsky on his show earlier this week because I think it's so telling and it's an early example of this sort of thing. But uh, back in April, early April, I had an appointment with my accountant. And my I live in Center City, Philadelphia. My accountant is out in the suburbs. I've been going to him for years. I know how to get there. But I was testing the Apple Watch. It was the first week. It was actually the week in between when I got the review unit and when the review was due. And I don't drive that much. Um, and I thought, well, here's the one, here's a chance to try out driving directions. I'll let the watch give me driving directions there, uh, even though I don't really need them. And it worked great. But then like halfway there, it told me to get off the, we call it the, it's the Schuylkill Expressway. It's the main artery west out of Philadelphia. Um, and it told me to get off and go a way that I never would have driven. And I thought, well, I'll listen, to, I'll, I'll listen to Siri. Let's see what happens. And as <laughs> I took the exit, I looked ahead and I could see that it was all that, that I, it had taken me off an exit and traffic was at a standstill ahead. And I was like, hmm. And it took me this weird way we, uh, through North Philadelphia that I never would have gone. I've never driven there in my life. And I ended up getting to my accountant maybe 10 minutes later than I normally would have given where I left. But I was still early. I was on time. And I checked on, on the news and on the maps, and a tractor trailer had overturned on the Schuylkill Expressway. And if I had just stayed on the Schuylkill, I never would have made the appointment. And it actually was kind of a big deal because like rescheduling an appointment with your accountant in early April is it's like you're asking a huge favor because yeah, not easy. pretty much he's already booked 14 hours a day. Uh, I was kind of blown away. It's very, very clear to me that the turn-by-turn dri -turn driving directions I got from Siri took the traffic into consideration and gave me a bizarre, to me, a bizarre plan B or root B until I found out that there was this traffic. And I think little things like that are the sort of things that people, I, I think a lot of people think Apple isn't doing at all. And that that's why they, you know, they think Google has a leg up in these regards. 
Right. So you think they need to better pronounce that they're doing this? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's going to sneak up on it might, you know, it might be the sort of thing that they never get credit for because they might right. never completely catch up to Google, but they'll, right. they'll keep pace and, and these things are going to get better. But there's no doubt that this is the future. This is like the next few years of, of like the whole ball game. Right. So maybe like this new spotlight screen will uh, show maybe leave a few minutes early because there is a car fire here and there. So. Yeah. Or something like that, you know? Yeah. And I wonder how that ties into Siri too. Like this new spotlight screen. Yeah. Um, to Siri, it's a compliment. It's not a replacement or really anything like that. It's more of a works with Siri type of thing. Right. So it's, I wouldn't call it a textual view of Siri. I'd more so call it a compliment, I think is a good way to do it. But some of it's already tied in, like when you do, you know, like, and, and it's, some of it's just product marketing. What do they call, what What do they call Siri? Exactly. Right? See, like, I honestly, when I was writing this report, I didn't have insight into how they're going to market it because right. I don't even know if they settled on all that by the time this story was written. But they could very well kill the name Spotlight, not use the name Proactive, and call all this stuff Siri. Like the new Siri screen on the home screen. Yeah. Or they could just keep this as, I mean, I think they're just going to keep this as Spotlight, as this whole thing called Spotlight. Right. So what if they even integrate this onto the Mac too? I mean, some of the stuff wouldn't make sense, but maybe a better view for appointments and such. Yeah. Because some of the stuff definitely involves some of the same partners, you know, where the the autofill results in Safari come from some of the same partners that they have for Siri. That's yeah, and that's the same deal. It's all it's all one back end type of deal here. The spotlight, the new proactive stuff, and the uh, results in Safari. And a lot of this is really to try to tackle Google and reduce reliance on them. Eventually, you know, it's very hard to just wake up one day and decide to drop Google Search from your platform. But year over year, they're adding features that kind of reduce the reliance on Google, and kind of teaching the consumer that Google is not necessary. So yeah. last year, they took some steps with the new Spotlight, with the Wikipedia results and, and all that, and some news articles. This year, they'll have this. Next year, maybe they'll have something else. Maybe a year, two or three after that, everyone will be like, there's no point for Google search, and it'll be easy to go away. I've noticed, and it's subtle, um, and I use DuckDuckGo a lot, too, but on... I don't even know why. I don't really have a strategy for it. But like on my Mac, I have my default search for the search field in Safari set to DuckDuckGo. And I have had it set for months. And I've tried it on and off ever since they made it an option. And at some point, it was it got to be good enough where it stuck. Um, right. On the phone, I still have Google as my default search. I, I, I don't know why. But I've noticed that even on the phone, how many times the top result is... Yes, that's what I'm looking for. And then I notice that it's not going through Google. It's the Safari suggestion, which is yep. backed by Google. That they're, uh, more or less, it's like their version of I feel lucky, right? Except you get to preview, Absolutely. You, you get to preview it before you actually tap it. And I, I've noticed on the phone that it's, it's exactly what I want an awful lot of time. Which right. And there's a big emphasis. Google. Right. And there's also a big emphasis as part of this proactive thing to improve that because right now it's not a hundred percent of the time that you'll get a Wikipedia result or a news article. The news article thing for a search term might only fire 25% of the time. So they're working on improving the AI. So you can, you can get more quick results. Like you said, more frequently. 
Let me take a break here and thank our third sponsor, and it is our good friends at Squarespace. You guys know Squarespace. It's the all-in-one hosting website building platform. Uh, you need a website, you go to Squarespace, and they got it all, everything. You can register your domain name. You have uh, Your hosting is taken care of. They have all sorts of templates you choose from visually through drag-and-drop uh, you want to get in there, you want to mess with the code, you can mess with the code, you can do it all. But it's all there and the framework is there. And it's the difference between starting, like if you're building an app, starting with a framework like Coco or Coco Touch, or just starting with like a, a blank text file and building an app from scratch. That's the difference. That's what Squarespace is like. It's like a framework for websites and you can use it to build almost any sort of website you can imagine. You want to build a store? They've got it. They've got templates for that. They've got all of the uh, commerce stuff built right into the platform. You don't have to pay extra to get an e-commerce enabled account. That's just built in to a regular Squarespace account. So if you have stuff to sell, you can sell it. You want to set up a podcast? They've got that. You can set up a podcast right there in Squarespace. They've even got podcast-specific stuff like the audio player, um, uh, analytics and stuff like that. Their analytics for any kind of website are absolutely drop dead gorgeous. I just linked to a guy this week who, who after I linked to his blog, which happened, I didn't even know it happened to be hosted at Squarespace. Uh, and is, you know, he was, it's this sounds self-serving, but he went from serving you know, a couple hundred hits a month to serving a couple thousand in a day because I linked to him from Daring Fireball. Well, A, his Squarespace blog held up perfectly. He didn't even notice. It took like a friend to text him that I had mentioned it. Uh, your site doesn't go down if you suddenly get a lot of traffic. But then he posted these screenshots of his analytics, and they're gorgeous, just drop-dead gorgeous analytics. Just looks like something from Edward Tuft. Really, really great. Everything you need, all there in one platform. If you don't have any kind of coding skill, that's okay. You can go from signing up to having your completely launched and perfect-looking website all-in-one. If you do have coding skill, there's all sorts of places where you can get in there and customize it to your heart's content. Here's the thing. I just don't even get this. It doesn't make any sense to me. All of this starts at just eight bucks a month. And if you sign up for a year in advance, you get a free domain name. I, I don't know. I don't know how they provide all this. They've got great support, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You just get on there and you can open up a chat uh, with uh, uh, customer support agents. The way they do it to get it 24 seven is they have some, some in New York, some over in Ireland and some uh, out in Portland, I think so that it spreads it all around the world, different time zones. If you have a website that you want to make, if you have a website you already have that you're not happy with the way it's hosted, give them a try. You get a free trial, no credit card required. Just go to squarespace.com. And when you sign up to pay, here's the new code, Gruber, my last name, G-R-U-B-E-R, -E and you get 10% off. Use that code, my last name, Gruber, and you'll save 10% off. So go there, sign up for your free account, um, a free trial, uh, and Go try Squarespace. I can't recommend them high, highly enough. Uh, so iOS 9, we were talking about proactive. That doesn't sound like a name that they would use. No. I don't know, though. Especially with the acne cream with the same name. Maybe it's just an internal thing. Yeah. We'll you see. never know, though. It's very hard to predict the product marketing stuff, and it tends to be the tightest kept secret. Partly yeah. because they can just change it at the last minute. 
Right, right. All right, what else is on the agenda for iOS 9? iOS 9. Uh, some minor things are on the edges. So they've been testing a new feature for iMessage where you can set read receipts per contact. So if I want messages sent to you, for, ah. for you to know that if you if uh, they've been read, that's fine. But if I don't want my parents to see that I've read their messages, uh, I can turn that off. Right. I, that makes a lot of sense. That also makes me think that they're using it a lot internally. Yeah, perhaps. Also, oh, this is maybe to your point about internal usage. They're also testing uh, read receipts for group chats so you can see who in a chat ha- has read each message. Yeah, that makes sense too. Same thing. Yeah, yeah same, probably the same infrastructural deal there. Yeah. Um, Force touch support. Obviously, they won't announce that on Monday, but right means that the 6S will have Force Touch. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a developer API for that as well. Uh, yeah, but I wonder, and I wonder if that's the sort of thing that will. I'm guessing no, but it's you know obviously they're not going to talk about it, right? Uh, but will it be in the beta builds? Will it will be people be able to look at it? I, my guess is no. I think they're. I'm sure someone will find it hidden right. deep down. Um, trying to think. Oh, on the the HomeKit app. So a new app. At least they were planning this. Now that they have HomeKit accessories on the market, which just happened to come out this past week, you'll be able to set up, install, organize through virtual rooms your HomeKit setups. So, hmm, that's an interesting app. They have Home uh, and then HomeKit Health, HealthKit, and all that. I wonder how much HomeKit stuff they're going to have to announce next week. Because that's another one where where the word that I had understood was that it was sort of tied to that new Apple TV, that the Apple TV would be the hub for that sort of thing. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I did hear that as well. And if they don't have the Apple TV, I don't know what that means for HomeKit, even though they're already out you know, publicly with that the first HomeKit products are, you know, shipping imminently and stuff like that. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, also on the iPad, it sounds like split screen apps are finally ready. Yeah, I saw that. And I'm curious that that's not like a thing that they held for new hardware and that they might announce it next week. Oh, they, they, they may be holding it for new hardware, uh, but, but, it's, but you, but you're saying it's definitely in the, it's in the OS. Right. So they might not announce it. It might not be in the betas, but they're working on it with the OS. Another thing is uh, multi-users on the iPad. That for sure isn't ready for 9.0, but they are working on that too. So maybe that's... Do you know, is it true multi-user support? Like like if, if, let's say, somebody and their spouse both share an iPad and that they could, you know, person A can use it and then when they put it down their spouse can pick it up and switch and then it'll like, you know, do something. And then it's completely the other person's iPad or is it just like a guest account? No, 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 no. It's true multi-user on a Mac with different home directories and all that. Of course the user Hmm. can't see home directories on iOS, but in terms of the infrastructure and the fundamentals of it, it's just like on the Mac from what I understand. Hmm. All right, let's see if I still got a little game left. All right, what about this? Have you heard anything about in iOS getting a dedicated iCloud Drive app? Um, yes, that there was a dedicated iCloud Drive app, but 
I'm not sure if that's internal only or if it's going to be released. Uh, the last person I talked to said they didn't see an iCloud Drive app on the iOS hmm. 9 build they were using. So maybe it's an App Store download. You activated it in settings, but for sure they have one in usage internally and able to be used and ready to go. In fact, I'm surprised they didn't have an iCloud Drive app released with iCloud Drive last year. But right. I wouldn't be surprised by an iCloud Drive app at all. Right, which would probably be the closest that iOS is ever going to get to having a Finder. Yeah, I'd agree and so, on that. Right, instead of a, of access to the file system, it's you get the access to this abstract file system, which isn't really the file system. It's you know like Dropbox, it, right? Sort of, or like in uh, in the Finder, if you were just limited to the iCloud Drive source list item. Right. It'll be interesting to see, I mean, even thinking about myself, right now I use Dropbox. If they had a full-fledged iOS app, I'd absolutely consider switching to, to iCloud Drive. Yeah, because why why duplicate it? Right. Now, let me tell you why I think that you could be right on this iCloud Drive app, if you were implying that you had heard this. Um, they are kind of going to be pushing iCloud Drive more as a service, as in right now, the mm. Notes app in the calendar app and all that it uses an IMAP infrastructure through iCloud for yep. syncing with your devices. But what they're wanting to do is remove that and turn notes and calendar and reminders into what they're calling iCloud drive apps. So right. when you launch notes on iOS 9 or OS 10, 10.11, it'll say, would you like to transition your data over to iCloud drive? Now, iCloud Drive, obviously, they have more control over it. It's more secure. It goes back to the privacy and security stuff we talked about. And also, it's probably quicker than IMAP syncing. So I think it's got to be. If it's not quicker than IMAP, then they've got a real problem. Right. Because IMAP is not a quick syncing right. protocol. Right. So there could be a big iCloud Drive portion then there. Yeah. And it's interesting. And it's this. The, it, it's always hard to migrate. Right, uh, because I can see, wh- and I can see why that when you launch it, they ask because it's a big deal. Right, but the thing is now, and Notes is the one near and dear to my heart as you know the part of the developers behind Vesper. Uh, I know just how bad IMAP is as a note syncing protocol, and and they've done what I think is the noble thing and allowed you for years to pick any of your IMAP accounts to be one of you know it's an option with every imap account you set up do you want notes to use this too right and then they set up a secret mailbox called notes and it's actually a mailbox on your mail account that apple mail is smart enough not to show you but the notes are all imap messages and it's behind the scenes it's really a mess because imap was never meant to do that messages aren't meant to be read right some email systems get screwed up and as anybody who's ever had anything to do with email development or APIs knows IMAP server A and IMAP server B never speak quite the same dialect of IMAP. So notes is trying to, you know, like a, like a babble fish type thing and treat all these IMAP things as equivalent backends when they're not. Right. So you I know? guess this serves to fix all that and it could be a bigger deal than what would think Yeah, it should. Surface. It, if you switch, I would switch immediately. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, and it should make uh, anything that you switch that way. What else is it besides notes? Would it- um, I heard notes is the big one that that that's the one that they really focused on. Right. But assuming that you know they're wanting to get this across the board as a service, 
notes, reminders, contacts, and calendars would all be part right. of it. Well, what does reminders use now? Is reminders IMAP based? Um, I think it is. I'm not 100% uh, sure. I don't actually. know. Or, or even if it's not, it's probably not using iCloud Drive, which is right. New. It's right. it's like a directional shift to positioning iCloud Drive as the service for storing right. all this data now. Maybe some more developer enhancements to that as well. Yeah. The other benefit to this is it's always good when Apple is dog fooding its own iCloud stuff because it's it means that any kind of bugs or even if it's not a bug even if it's like well when you do this it's actually kind of slow makes it way more likely that it's going to get a higher priority to be addressed because quite frankly apple cares more about their own stuff than they do everybody else's right another big thing i don't know if this interests most consumers but big changes to swift so you know right now this is not very well known everyone hears the term swift swift is apple's new thing but as you probably know, iOS is not written in Swift. The Apple's native apps, they're not they're not Swift apps. They're still on Objective C right. because Swift is still in its early stages. But I believe that on Monday they're going to announce that Swift is moving into stage 2, that it's meeting a new level of stability where Apple's actually going to pre-install the Swift programming libraries into iOS 9. So developers yeah. could write Swift apps and not have to include the Swift libraries in each of their binaries, yep. which means that the OS will make app downloads for new iOS 9 apps about 10 megabytes smaller or 8 megabytes smaller on average. And let's say you have 10 you know, Swift apps on your iOS 8 phone, that's about 80 megabytes back, which yep. is great for people on smaller storage sizes. And then next year with iOS 10 and 10.12, they're hoping to hit like 3.0 and ship their own apps written in Swift. So that's going to be a major transition next year if they stick to that pace. If they hit that, that's actually, you know, for anybody who's not a programmer and doesn't understand just how deep Apple's roots with Objective-C goes, if they started shipping Apple first-party apps written in Swift in 2016, that's startlingly fast really 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 would be um i think even last year everybody was blown away by the announcement of swift in the keynote even then though i think most people's best case scenario was three or four years out yeah i guess the plan could change but yeah yeah. no i've heard the same thing about the libraries being built into the os and i think that there's two explanations for that and i could be I think I'm right on both parts, but I think one of them is that Swift was developed in secret and very few people knew about it before the keynote last year inside Apple. And so therefore there was no way that the, that no matter how stable it was when it debuted, there's no way that it was going to make it into iOS eight. Right. And number two, it wasn't that stable. It's a fast moving target. They said, so, you know, it, 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 they did not overpromise. You know, they said, "Hey, some of this stuff is going to change." You know, we're showing it to you now because we want it to change based on the feedback we get from you guys outside. Um, and so, because it was changing so fast, I don't know that it was even feasible to include the the libraries in the OS because if your app was compiled against an earlier version of Swift from around September and mine was compiled with a newer version of Swift, like uh, the version 1.2, I think, which came out in February, we need different libraries anyway. And so, yeah, you're exactly right though, that every single Swift app written to date includes the Swift 
libraries, you know, in the app bundle. Right. It definitely adds up over wireless. I mean, when you're on cellular. Right. Yeah. That's another big thing there. So. Um, it's all part know, of the same quality, stability, overall low-level improvements type of thing as well. Yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. You never know. I mean, who knows what the hell is going to be in the keynote and anything that I mean. All I know is iOS nine and OS ten, but I wouldn't be surprised if Swift made the keynote again and did not wasn't just relegated to the afternoon state of the platform's second keynote. Right. We'll see. Maybe they'll throw something up on the that last slide they always do with the the very small changes, smaller app downloads or something. <laughs> for swift apps yeah maybe that's that's certainly one way to make it compelling uh who knows you know and you know the swift team was very secretive last year and even though you know the the public changes there have been plenty of them in the year since it's come out who knows what other secret stuff they've been working on in terms of performance or something like that uh, right i mean again and it's so hard to say because i know the conference is wwdc and so ostensibly the whole conference is about developers but let's sure. face it that the Monday keynote is really a mass market Apple keynote. Yeah. I mean, they're um, streaming it on their website, the whole Apple I, music thing. So. This again, purely completely pulled out of my ass just, but it's just in terms of knowing what some of the weak spots in Swift currently are. I know that debugging is a real weak spot. It's, it's not, it's nothing that has nothing like the apparatus that objective C has for debugging. <laughs> so if they added awesome, amazing you know leaps ahead of objective c develop uh debugging again this might make like the general press who are there watching the keynote be like i don't know what that means but it's going to make the developers in the audience go nuts they if, did a pretty good at, job with that last year of trying to spin the developer oriented announcements through consumer yeah. focus so like when they had the whole developer portion of the keynote they really focused on high level stuff such as like the touch id api media could understand that yeah. But, and like the cool graphics they showed with the Swift demo. So, what else with iOS 9? New keyboard, better legacy device support. What do you uh, What have you heard about that? Now, that's something that I guess you've reported on that they're targeting A5. Right. Okay. Devices. So, when they traditionally created a new iOS update, they would like test all the features and all the devices they wanted to support and then pick apart features that didn't work well on the older hardware. And that's kind of why older iPhones got bloated and stale and sluggish. This year, they're targeting at least the iPhone 4S and iPad mini specifically to, instead of throwing all the features on those from iOS 9 and then picking it apart, they're adding features one by one on top of the OS. So on those older devices, it should still be much faster than even iOS 8. So I would go as far as to say is iOS 9 will make iPad minis and iPhone 4s's on older OS's even faster. So that sounds like common sense. Like it just sounds like, well, duh, but I, there's no doubt if that's true, that is a, a seriously different strategy that they've right. pursued. And in my opinion, extremely welcome. I mean, for me personally, it's irrelevant because I'm an idiot and I buy a new iPhone every year. <laughs> but <laughs> as an observer of the company and as somebody who, you know, uh, I always try to stay out of it. Like when family members are like, well, should I get a new iPhone or what computer should I buy? And I try to be like, ask somebody else. Don't, don't put, <laughs> because I feel like it's like a, you break it, you bought it. Like you tell right. them to buy a MacBook Air and then you're on the hook for all of the tech support going forward. Exactly. But I hear it. You know what I mean? It's like, 
I, I don't know. I don't I mean, what do you say to somebody who is like, uh, you know, like somebody in your family who's like, I don't know. I, my iPhone said it had an update and I said, okay. And then 10 minutes later, and now my iPhone is slow. And it's like, well, that, that sucks. <laughs> They're going to need to spend some time changing the narrative on that. Because even with the people who don't follow Apple closely, there is this narrative going around in like the mass market that iPhone updates screw with your phone. People don't yeah. want to update. And so I think with this WWDC, they're going to have to step back and really promote the new S as being a big quality and performance leap. And I think that's exactly what they're going to do. Yeah. And I think that that's one of those things where Apple gets, and, and it's this, the, the recent, you know, thawing in, in the post Katie Cotton PR Apple, you know, and, and the, the sort of, you know, uh, maybe you wouldn't call them open, but they're opener. Sure. And they were right. that they're sort of trying to get past that, which is that uh, in the past, it was very easy to mistake their complete and utter silence for uh, ambivalence, whereas they might care very deeply about something, but they're still not going to say anything. And you can't. How can you tell from the outside? And I think that that's one. This might be one of those things where they've been. They're aware of the criticism. They're aware of the problem, not just the criticism, but they're aware that it's a legitimate problem, and and now they're doing something about it. Right. And they were, of course, aware of this before, you know, it was written about. Like, I know you were one of the first people to really highlight the the bugs, right, earlier this year in iOS 8 and Yosemite, yeah. talking about that. But, you know, of course engineers have been pushing for a step back like this for, for a while. But yeah. Apple's really governed by marketing, right? So, yeah. Well, and perception, you know, right? Perception. And, and, so, um, uh, while we're on that subject, what about this whole crazy Discovery D thing? Yeah, Have you heard anything about that? Uh, yes, I did hear something about that—the backstory, but I don't remember what I was told. <laughs> something about it being a mistake that that wasn't the plan initially. I don't know. I have to go back and look, but. Mm. I know that they knew this was a problem and they wanted to fix it. What have you yeah. heard while I try to think about this? Well, I uh, rehashing a little bit from last week's show with Renee, but it's what I've heard is that it's become a whipping boy internally. And as it, it is a, it is a bad piece of software at the moment. Now that doesn't mean it's unfixable. It just means it shouldn't have shipped when it did. It should not have replaced MDNS responder yet. Right. And the assumption that so many people had on the outside was that, okay, this clearly this piece of software discovery D is buggy, but they must have shipped it because these continuity features must have depended on it. And they had to, you know, these continuity features were a tent pole. So they had to ship discovery D when they did ready or not. And then it turns out that, that these, you know, the third party people, the sort of hacker crowd who figured out, Hey, if you put in MDNS responder from Mac OS 10.8 or, or 10.9, uh, and, disable discovery D everything still works and the bugs from discovery D go away and your printer doesn't disappear after a week and your <laughs> Apple TV doesn't get renamed Apple TV three. And again, like I said to Renee, I would never recommend that. that I'm too old for that. That's the sort of, you know, following advice like that is the sort of stuff. That's a young man's game in my opinion, but <laughs> it turns out with the, the, the latest, uh, you know, that's exactly what Apple has done now, you know, in a more official format and 
with more rigorous, you know, QA and stuff like that, but more or less they've just taken out and which raises the question of how, if it wasn't needed for those continuity features, how, how did discovery D get through in the first place? So, yeah, I just remembered similar to what you said, what I heard was that the guy in charge of the MDNS responder left Apple or retired or was moved off the project. And then the airport hardware team and the airport utility software team somehow inherited that whole infrastructure. And they made the change because they weren't under great direction. Hmm. And then when stuff hit the fan about that earlier this year, then they realized they had to change it back with the, the software. Right. And I, again, I don't know anything about the internals of MDNS responder and discovery D, but I can imagine though that maybe MDNS, maybe there's like a theory that MDNS responder is old code. It's been there forever. Maybe, I don't know, who knows, maybe it even dates back to the next era. Uh, and it's built up over time and is therefore sort of an ugly, ugly, but it works type thing. And that discovery D was, Hey, let's start all over and make something beautiful and modern and elegant. And, you know, a lot of times those things that sound like a good idea that involve let's start over <laughs> are not yeah. and turn out not being good ideas. I, that's my guess as to what happened is that somebody looked at MDNS responders code and thought this is a mess. It's too big. It's convoluted. We can replace this with something smaller and more elegant. And if it had worked, it would have been a great idea. And it's the problem is that it didn't. Yeah, but I have heard, sense. though, that internally, though, that it became a whipping boy and took on. It, 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 it internally was deemed as being largely responsible for this whole, hey, Yosemite is an unstable release of the OS. And that instead, internally, it was chalked up to, it's not Yosemite's problem, it's Discovery D's problem. And that politically, you know, you don't really want to be the guy in charge of Discovery D right now. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if they come out on stage. and uh, It's it's funny because we're not him. <laughs> right, exactly. We wouldn't be laughing. Yeah. All right, let me take one last break. I have one more sponsor to thank, and it is our good friends, really good friends of the show at Igloo. You guys know Igloo. They make the internet that you will actually like. You sign up for Igloo, you get an intranet, private intranet for your team, and you can do things like share news, organize your files, share files, coordinate calendars, uh, manage projects and to-dos, that sort of thing, all in one place. You can set up little micro blogs so you can have like your like the equivalent of Twitter, but just for your internal team. We're a great little place where you can have a little chronological thing, just like tweets where you share links, little comments, stuff like that. Uh, their latest upgrade, they call it Viking, revolves around documents and how you interact with them. They really beefed up the ability to share documents, uh, gather feedback, make changes. They've even added the ability, uh, speaking of read receipts for iMessage, Igloo has read receipts now for documents that you've shared. So if there's a document that certain people on your team absolutely have to see or have to sign off on, they've got the ability now you can mark it where you'll receive a read receipt from the critical people on the team who have to see it. Um, it's just like read receipts for email or iMessage or something like that. Not annoying because it's your own private team. You're not getting them from everybody external. It's just a little thing for your team. Um, if your company, if your company or team has a legacy internet, something that you're using that looks like it was built in the nineties. And if you have an internet, it almost certainly was something like SharePoint or something like that, that probably was built in the nineties. You should give Igloo a try. Uh, here's what you do. 
go to their soft, go to their website, igloosoftware.com slash the talk show, igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. Uh, you'll get a free trial. And if your team is 10 people or under, you can just use it for free indefinitely. Just use it for free. That's it. And then if you have more than 10 people, uh, their prices are amazingly low per person over 10. So go to igloosoftware.com. If you have a team, you need to coordinate uh, all the stuff that teams need to do. Go there, check them out. My thanks to them. Great friends of the show. Lots and lots of readers have signed up for this and have written to say just how much they love Igloo. So that my thanks to Igloo. All right, what else we got before we, we sign off for the for the episode? New keyboard, but I don't know much about that. What do you What have you heard? I don't know anything about it. Nothing. Not mm. a. Probably not a big change. Yeah. Hopefully, just a fixed shift key. That's there. Fixed shift key. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny, but like the <laughs> the DNS guy or the Discovery D guy, it's not funny for them. <laughs> they did fix it a little bit. I find that the whatever they did when they made it go white, I guess they fixed cool. it and they broke it. And they fixed it again. Yeah, I still don't know why they don't just make it blue. Yeah. Like the blue to me, like I I just don't get that because the, to me when when the arrow went blue when shift was engaged, it was so unambiguous that it, nobody I never even had to think about it. It's like I never even in the early years of iOS it never even occurred to me that there was something to think about there. Right, exactly. Like and to me that's the hallmark of all good design is all good design. It took tons of good thinking and tons of work and prototypes to result in a thing that when you use it looks like it wasn't designed at all. Yeah. Whereas the, the iOS 7 shift key <laughs> screamed, I was designed by somebody exactly. who, <laughs> who thought they were very clever. Um, no, I haven't heard anything about new keyboard. I haven't heard that much. Honestly, I, I don't really, I don't really know much. I know everything I know comes from you, Mark. Well, I'm happy to hear Almost. that. I hope I'm all right. <laughs> I think you're pretty good. We should talk, though, before we go. Let's talk to wrap the show. Unless you have something else for WWDC. Um, I mean, we didn't really talk about the Apple Music stuff, but that's uh, pretty uh, straightforward, I guess. Yeah, and that stuff leaks like a sieve because the the media companies in general are blabbermouths, like the TV companies. But the music companies are the worst. The music companies, yeah. it's like you can practically – it's like I, Eddie Q isn't even out the door, and they're calling – people in the media to talk about the meeting that they just had yeah yeah or he's at a warriors game and they're sitting right next to him <laughs> i still i still i cannot wait to see if he's at the game sunday night yeah <laughs> we'll see. uh if you don't have anything else though i would just you know just briefly let's go back a couple months and talk about the the uh big feature profile you wrote i guess it was last year on apple pr okay um, which was, I thought, you know, and there was, I have to admit when you wrote it there, you know, behind the scenes, you know, that in my world there, it, it definitely raised a lot of discussion and the consensus, my, it was that you were half right in, and a lot of it in ways that nobody had ever written about before, which is mainly because Apple PR doesn't want you writing about the way Apple PR works. And there right. is a little bit of you got to play ball and you don't, you know, almost every interaction that I have with Apple PR is off the record, not for attribution, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, and so therefore writing about those machinations would there be therefore be a violation 
of what I've agreed to, and therefore I don't write about it. Right. I'm not hiding it. It's, you know, it is what it is. And if, you know, and if I felt otherwise, then I wouldn't agree to it in the first place. And a lot of the stuff that you wrote about in, in your piece was accurate in that way. Then there was a quarter of it, I would say that was, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't even know what to say about it. Cause I just don't know. Could be right. Could be wrong. And then there was another quarter of it. I would say where I think you were wrong. Okay. Um, so which quarter of it? I don't remember specifically if we well, talked about it. Or I think that your take on how they do um, review units was wrong. Okay. And obviously, this is a little bit self-serving. And so, you know, anybody, both you and anybody listening, feel free to take it, you know, with your eyes rolled or with a big grain of salt. Because obviously, it's it. I don't want to come across as defensive, but you can obviously see how it might be but i not to put words in your mouth but uh, or in your piece but the gist of it was that your take was that they seed review units to known friendly outlets that's that, fair to say yeah right i don't think that's true and in fact i think i can think of some counter examples where they seed them to people who they i think know are actually sort of not friendly and i would file for example the verge under that and i wouldn't say the verge is hostile and I know that The Verge is under, has the most bizarre readership possible, where half of their readers think that they are in the bag for Apple, and mm -hmm. the other half think that they're the worst anti-Apple agitators on the entire internet. Right. And it's very bizarre to me. But I would say that The Verge, for example, I th and I think to placate the half that thinks that they're in the bag for Apple, that The Verge consistently bends over backwards to grade Apple on a curve that doesn't apply to other devices. And that if they, it, it, it's, and it's my, and the fact though, that they still have top tier access to Apple review units is proof to me that they don't really seed out friendly reviewers. Well, I mean, my response to that now, I don't want to say that I remember my discussions with whoever I talked to for right. these profiles, however long ago this was six seven eight nine months ago but if i remember correctly apple stopped giving the verge review units at they did point. there was the one um that is true and it was so i, I don't think that counterexample is completely valid just to be it's, fair it's a good point that's an excellent point i forget when it was i'm 90 percent sure topolsky was still there and if i believe i think it was two years ago you should have asked them last week yeah, I should have. I forgot about it. I, uh, I think it was two two years ago that they didn't get early access to the phone, right? And then they, but they did get day before access, and so see, there's it, different tiers, right? There's right. the right after the keynote or a couple weeks in advance, which I believe that you've been traditionally a part of the last few years. Right. Then there's the day before, day of, or a couple of days before. And then there's the review units given after the products available. That's correct. I think that there are three tiers. One, and and to my knowledge, there's nobody, nobody on the nobody is on a pre keynote tier. Even Mossberg, uh, who I would think would, if anybody would be, it would be Mossberg. And I think right. Pogue. Pogue post New York Times is, is, I think, you know, he still gets, he's still on tier one, but I, I think everybody would agree that since he's gone to Yahoo, he's lost a bit of relevancy. Um, yeah, I don't want to 
speak negatively about it. Right. I, it's it's all catty and inside baseball, but it's, right. you know, uh, just being trying to be as honest as I can. I think Mossberg yeah, is absolutely. the only one. It's not like it used to be, right? It no. used to be that Mossberg, Pogue, Ed Begg, and Stephen Levy, while he was still at Newsweek, that they're, they're the four who got the iPhone, and yep. nobody else got the iPhone before the iPhone came out. Um, that there were only four reviewers who mattered and the world has changed greatly since then. And Apple PR's perspective on this stuff has changed greatly since then. But as of right now, I think you're correct that there's three tiers post keynote, uh, day or two before, which I think is largely the reason it's like a day or two is that to my knowledge, uh, and again, I could be I could be wrong about certain people, but I I've never heard of an exception. Nobody ever gets a review unit of serious hardware, something that that is worth being in a keynote. There are minor things that they might ship to to reviewers, um, but if it's a flagship new product, the only way you can get a review unit is to have a product briefing with Apple, sure, where yeah. they give you know they give it to you by hand and tell you in a you know one to one or one to two you know whatever meeting. Um, you know, what they think about it and what their main points are about it. And therefore, with an expanded, um, like, I get the impression, and I don't know when everybody got Apple Watches, but I got the impression that, like, the second tier for the Apple Watch was spread over two or three days because I think they gave them to so many people that there was no way that they could do it all, like, two days before the watch came out, like uh, April 22nd. Some of the people got April 23rd because there just aren't, isn't that way to meet that many people with a briefing. When did you get yours? A week before? Yeah, like a week and a half before. Okay. Is that early, a week and a half? It's normal for most products. A lot of the time, you could. there's no... I don't even have to be secret. I got with a watch. I don't think I'm, I think of the NDA I signed. I can't say exactly when I got it, but it was roughly a week and a half. Um, with most products, there's a keynote, right? So for right. example, when the phones come out, uh, there's a keynote, you get your review unit after the keynote in a product briefing. And then the, the embargo is always like Wednesday. I always, I actually miss that. I, I don't know, but the products always. You don't follow those mailers. You you wait till. Well, after. I try to. I, do, I try <laughs> my best, Mark. I do. Uh, the embargo is usually like Wednesday, like like forty eight hours before they go on sale on Friday, or right. the, the pre ordered ones start shipping. Um, so like a Monday keynote or a Tuesday keynote with a Wednesday embargo the next day. You know, usually it's usually they're like eight or nine day periods. Yeah. And I think that some, I don't even, I'd have to look at a calendar, but I think that the watch review units were eight or nine days, which felt way too short. It felt to me like I had the watch for two days. It was crazy. I mean, it, like I have my watch here. It took time to get used to it, to want to wear it, to want to use it, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I've really- said before, and I'll say it again, hardest, re- hardest review I've ever written. And I think it stands up and I'm pretty proud of what I wrote, but it's the, the pieces I wrote later in the month, I think are way more like relevant. And like years from now, when I look back at what I thought of the original Apple watch, it's the, the further pieces I wrote weeks later, I think are more, more telling. I think Apple did it themselves a disservice, uh, waiting until that short before the launch to give it to the viewers, but maybe that has to do with, uh, the software not being ready. Yeah, I really am not sure about that. And I wonder how much they went back and forth on that. And I think that they knew I, I, in fact, just talk, uh, talking to people at Apple, uh, 
I know that they knew that it takes time to really get the, you know, to acclimate it to your life. Like it really doesn't kick in until you stop thinking about it. Honestly. And I know that sounds stupid, but it's, I think everybody I know who has one agrees that it's when you stop thinking about it, that it really starts hitting you. And you're like, you know what? I am walking a lot more, you know, and stuff like that. Anyway, though, I, in my experience, and who knows it, but the, the, I, I don't think that they seed out, uh, known to be friendly reviewers. I think that they look for, and again, this is going to sound self-serving for me, but I think they look in general for reviewers who are a, um, have a big following and that they're going to write, you know, to get into tier one, you have to have a certain amount of influence. And so I'm weird because I don't have a large audience, but I think that they consider the daring fireball audience to be influential. Um, again, this sounds terribly self-serving and I'm blushing as I say it, but I, I don't <laughs> like talking about myself like this, but I don't think they look for a positive review. I think they look generally for people who are going to get it, who are getting what it is that they're going after. Uh, and I, I never get notes after I write my reviews, never, not a word from them about anything. I am in, in my, honestly, I really think that they just want reviewers to be fair. That's the, to me, the main thing that they're after. And the thing that makes this all so hard to judge is that for the last decade, but at least in the time that I've been doing it, it's been an unbelievable string of very good products. And I've done this occasionally. I've looked back at old reviews of things like my, what I wrote about, you know, um, uh, like the Verizon iPhone or iPhone 4S and stuff like that. And d- did what I write hold up or was I excited because it was new? And I've so far, I have not found one where I felt like I missed the mark. And even looking at people who've been doing it longer than I have, like in rereading, like say David Pogue's original review of the iPhone in 2007 and stuff like that. I don't think that these reviews were positive just for the sake of being positive. I think almost all of them were spot on. And in fact, some of them, especially, uh, like the Mossberg ones, I think sometimes bend over backwards to emphasize things that just weren't that big a deal. Like, you know, devoting time in a 2007 review of the iPhone to talk about how it doesn't have a hardware keyboard like a BlackBerry, which mm. actually looked bad. It was like, well, here's the cons. You know, a BlackBerry has a hardware keyboard and you can type faster on it. Uh, right. and but what about and the map stuff? A lot of people missed the, the maps problems in their iPhone 5 reviews. Um, I don't remember yours in particular. Yeah, I don't remember that either. And then um, Siri as well. Siri was not a great product at launch, but people seem to have missed some of the uh, lack of functionality or accuracy there. The iPhone 4 antenna, I mean, I know that's that's a subject that we can spend another two hours on, but yeah, I, a lot I see, of people I think miss that. So. Siri's a good example. I remember with Maps in particular, I think... I remember thinking I missed the boat on that because I don't think I said anything one way or the other, but part of it was that in the course of my testing, I didn't go anywhere and mm-hmm. I was at home in Philadelphia and their maps in Philadelphia, as far as I did test them were pretty good. And it really seemed like the bigger problems with the initial 1.0 maps weren't so much in major metropolitan areas, but just about everywhere else. That's fair. Yeah. And to, to you know, 
driving turn by turn directions. I, you know, I don't drive most days. So if, you know, but again, that doesn't necessarily, I'm not saying that that means I'm above blame. I mean, it's, it's, it was a, I would rather, my goal is always to be right. And I want my reviews to, I want to, my reviews, like when people look back at them in 10 years to be like, well, he really nailed it. And I think it's hard to say for the, so what was that? Iowa six? Yes. And the iPhone five. Yep. Uh, it's hard to say that a review of iPhone, the iOS six and iPhone five, that if it didn't mention maps and the problems that it had, that it's accurate in the long term. But exactly. I don't think people avoided it trying to curry favor with Apple PR. I, I don't, I, I can't say that for everybody, but I really don't, I, I've never felt pressure like that at all from, from Apple. Right. I really don't think so. But the, the tell is going to be, when the day comes that Apple releases a product that is not that good. That's well, know, the iPhone five and the maps thing is a pretty good indicator there, but yeah, know. but the iPhone five itself was actually a pretty, it was a great device. Yeah. But I mean, maps was part of that. Siri, Siri was the iPhone four S's main feature. Really? Mm. You know, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I don't know. I just think that I, I just, you know, again, I think it was an, an interesting piece and I will absolutely positively put this one in the show notes. I'm making a note to myself right now because anybody who hasn't read it, you certainly can go back and nobody has ever written anything like this before or since, because I kind of get the sense that you've got a fuck it. I don't care what they think attitude towards them. Like, I don't think that you were trying to antagonize anybody with this article. I, no, I, not I, at all. This was about more so so i never had access like i mean you admit to having off the record conversations with them i i mean i've never had all sorts of access this started as sort of a research project to understand how they operate and why they operate this way in order so i could better understand my work my future work mm -hmm. what i've done in the past but in terms of that attitude, it doesn't really stem from an attitude. It stems from not having anything to lose. I have no relationship to lose. I feel that my work is so much better off being independent, me doing how, what I want, how I get to spread information, not having to fear that Apple's maybe not going to give me a review unit or talk to me if I say something or position something or, or break something. You know, the day that I, you know, work with a company on a story and get it out there from their angles the day that I don't want to do this anymore because I'm very happy with, with the way that I do my work and how I do it my way. It's not a screw it type of thing. Let's publish this. It's more of a, that's just my mindset, how I, how I like working independently. Yeah. I, my perspective on it is so weird because I never really expected that I would be in this position because when I started daring fireball, it was, you know, 2002 and it was, you know, before, before the Apple, st you know, stuff was even that big of a deal, right? Like iPods came out at little miniature events and town hall and stuff like that. Um, and then the iPhone came out and it was so big and such a huge deal, but they were, you know, review units only, like I said, only went to four people. Right. Um, and I'd built this whole thing up and turned it into, you know, something that I could call a career and it was successful all without any of that. Right. And in all the ways that it was successful before I had any kind of, you know, access to Apple PR, uh, it's still the same way. So like if I stopped getting, I've said this, you know, uh, you know, 
like Jim Dowell and I have talked about it. Like I never have any assumption that I'm getting any future. And I know this sounds like I'm now, it sounds like I'm being, uh, falsely humble, but honestly, like I, I don't, I, if I had to bet, I guess I'll get the iPhone success come September. But if I don't, if like the call doesn't come and then, you know, and, and I, there's no brief, there's no briefing after the keynote, I'd be like, well, I don't know. I must've, I don't know. I don't know what happened there, but must've had Mark on my podcast too many times. Yeah. I don't, maybe, maybe it's cause I had you on my podcast. I don't know, but it's, it's not going to hurt it's not going to hurt my revenue at all. Like I don't have any kind of ad, you know, I do get a lot of hits on the reviews when they come out, sure. but the deck ads don't go by page, you know, page count. It's, you know, every, and it by, by design, like I don't want to have, uh, articles like that. I don't want to have articles where I get, I make more money if they get read more, right. It just for one thing. Uh, so if it dries up, it dries up, you know, or if, you know, if, if somebody leaves somebody who's like a big fan of me and Apple PR is the reason I'm getting these things and then they quit and take a job somewhere else and I stop getting them. So be it. Clearly wasn't Katie Cotton. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I guess not. I, I, I wrote about yeah. when she left. I, I was blown away that she even knew who I was, but she was always <laughs> very nice to me. I have no idea what, what she was like in private though. I, you know, I clearly though, strategically, she had a different vision for Apple PR. And that, sure. that's the other reason I wanted to bring it up that you wrote about this. I kind of feel like your piece serves as a, as well, definitive is the wrong word because I do think that there are gaps and I don't see how you could have filled them in. This is the thing. I don't mean this as like, Hey, you could have done a better job. Sure. I almost feel like it's remarkable how much you got colored in. Um, but I kind of feel like it was a kind of amazing timing coming at the end of the Katie Cotton era, you know, because clearly strategically Apple PR has, has taken a strategic turn since then. Right. And in the story, I know I talked about like who would replace Katie Cotton and I said it would be Steve Dowling and mm -hmm. all indications are pointing to him instead of Karis, who was still at Apple at the time. And, you know, I got a lot of, you know, criticism privately saying, how could you say that? There's no way that's true and all that. But, you know. Look at the PR bios page now. So, oh my my impression, and I again, I it's funny because I have like an official relationship with Apple PR that you don't have, but like my unofficial, you know, back channel <laughs> input into the way Apple PR works is way cloudier than yours for sure. Like there were names that you had that I'd never heard of. Uh, and stuff that, you know, asking around, you know, people are like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate that I'd never heard of. <laughs> um, but my sense from the outside was that it was, uh, I, I'm almost surprised they didn't name Dowling sooner. And, and my guess, I could be wrong. I could be so totally wrong here that it's, it, there's people at Apple who, you know, who are just laughing if they're listening to this. But my sense was that the delay in naming Dowling was simply out of respect to Katie that her departure was not, uh, it was amicable. It was, we're going to, you know, I think she had been there a long time. I think she was ready for a break. And I think Tim Cook was looking for a new direction, but it wasn't like bad blood. It wasn't like she was pushed out the door, like forestall. Um, and therefore out of respect, they didn't name a successor right away. I, you know, I honestly disagree with that. I, okay. I could I, be wrong. No, no. I don't think that it was as bad blood as the forestall situation because, you know, they talked massive crap about him after the right. after his departure you didn't see any of that with cotton but right. i don't think it was amicable in any sense of the word all right amicable but you're right all right i, that, I yeah i, I, I think I, we're in agreement here right, right. i think we but can be it, in the middle 
But yeah, I think the reason they didn't name Dowling. How about respectful? Sure, it was respectful. That's very fair to say. Yeah, she still got like I don't know if severance is the right word, but like advisor status or, or something. Right. Stock options, but I think that they wanted to find uh, a like a cool big name replacement for Katie Cotton. Like they can make a splash with, take the company in a new, friendlier direction. There were those rumors of Jay Carney, the White House guy. But they didn't find anyone better. So I think they waited six months, nine months, and they didn't find anyone that they would think would be better. So they named Dowling, and they're going to go through him. My only thing about that, and I thought about that, but uh, and again, I don't know. But the only thing about that that I can think of is I can't think of another big, splashy name other than Jay Carney. Yeah, like who else I don't is know. There? Maybe someone right? there, from a startup or something. Like the weird, the weird world of PR in general is that PR people stay under the radar. Yeah, you know, and that there aren't, you know, like maybe like inside baseball, there's big names, and if you work in PR, you'd be like, wow, they got so and so. But from the outside, Jay Carney, who was the you know the White House um, press, what do they call it, press secretary? Yeah. Um, is the only big name that I even saw tossed about as a maybe. And that certainly right. would have been a big get. But other than him, I can't think of anybody else who it would have even been. Yeah, I don't know. But they, I guess it would be fair to say, like, they did their due diligence to try to find someone new from out of the company. It wouldn't be a great move to just promote Steve Dowling without looking elsewhere first. They need to be tactical about these types of things, especially exiting a regime that existed for 15 years. Hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing too that you just it it, it it just cannot be emphasized enough was how much that Katie Cotton and Steve Jobs were like had like this symbiotic relationship. Yeah, you know, that yeah. that she was as much Steve Jobs's press representative as she was Apple's, and right. that it that's not necessarily a bad thing because they were you know Steve Jobs and Apple were so intertwined in the public eye. Yeah. Like she even did all the press stuff for when Steve Jobs uh, sold um, Pixar to Disney. That yeah. wasn't Apple, but right? That was Steve, right? And you know, and according to um, the Becoming Steve Jobs book, she was one of only four Apple people who were at his you know private funeral. Right. Her, Q, Cook, and um, who was the fourth one? I don't Johnny. Remember. Johnny, of course, Johnny. Yeah. No it's, four stall. No. Yeah. And no Schiller, no, I mean, there's all sorts of people who, who, you know, clearly worked with him a long time, but it was a very, very short list. Johnny, you overlooked Johnny because it was so obvious. Right, right, right. I saw that though. I don't think the, the book broke that as great as the book was. I read it in your, uh, your post on that was great, but I I thought that that was, I thought that was, I thought that was news because his family, you know, the private family thing was so, so private. No, yeah. But I remember reading that in the journal. Oh, Back when two thousand eleven or so, I believe. Maybe I well, I could I be believe wrong, that, but I, yeah. I didn't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I uh, uh, before we go, while we're still on the subject of Katie, uh, when I interviewed Brent uh, Schlender and and Bruce Tedzini, Tedzelli, uh, the authors of Becoming Steve Jobs, when I did the event at the Apple Store uh, in New York a couple months ago, uh, and did a little, you know interview with them in front of the the crowd um i asked them because they did get i forget who the list of people who were associated with apple who they got interviews with but it's you know there was tim cook um 
Avi, you know, who's not there anymore, but, but, you know, clearly, you know, had the permission from Apple to talk to them and Katie. And so they had like a whole sit down interview with Katie Cotton and there's one sentence from her in the book. (laughs) (laughs) And they, and I asked about it and they both laughed and, and the gist was that, you know, you could take Katie Cotton out of Apple, but it doesn't change her take on the press. Like she gave them nothing. That's funny. That is funny. (laughs) It was like one sentence and it was like totally innocuous. Well, anyway, we've been going on long enough. This has been great. I think that everybody is now well prepared for WWDC. Uh, Mark Gurman, I thank you. I will link to probably the best thing I can link to is your pre WWDC wrap up posts because you you keep updating that, right? Uh, no, we posted a, a new one this morning that is one post that has everything. All right, I will link to that in the show notes. Appreciate uh, it. And then if anything breaks over the weekend, you'll update that same post. Yes. All right. That's great. Uh, and people can read you regularly. I'm sure they already do. They can either read you at uh, – there are two places you can find Mark at 9to5mac.com or at the top of TechMeme. <laughs> uh, I think they have a new ratings thing at TechMeme, and I believe you came out on top. Was Is this – am I overstating it? No, no, that's right. And they have a section about you in the Q&A. Did you see do that? Do they? Yeah, I did, I honest to God, I'm not bullshitting you. I don't know that. Where, it's pretty funny. Really? Yeah, yeah. What's it? Where does it say this? Um, on that new leaderboard page, there's a question. They did like a FAQ, and like the sample question is why I love John Gruber. Why is he not on the top of the list? And then they have like a whole answer about how you stick to analysis of other news stories, and that doesn't really fit in with tech memes. Uh, tech memes position or goal i honest to god did not know that now i gotta put this on the goddamn show notes how about <laughs> that there's a fact you gotta send me the link i can't find it about these lists is it the blog post about it uh you know what it's probably the blog post yeah i think they linked the blog post on the site i don't know i haven't yeah really looked at it holy shit there it is yeah <laughs> i did not see that Here's the answer. It says, I love John Gruber. He's great. Why isn't he on your leadership leaderboard? Although he's in the top 150, he's not in the top 100, and we only show the top 100. While his posts that make tech meme do tend to be heavily cited in the tech world, they don't appear there too often. Just twice in the last 90 days, in part because he mostly posts links with short commentary, which doesn't work well for tech meme. That's exactly what I've, I, I've never really worried about this because I've always thought it was exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I've talked to Gabe about this. I met Gabe years ago at like an O'Reilly conference, the guy who, you know, the, the guy behind TechMeme. And we talked, he, we talked about years ago about how I'm like an exception who doesn't fit into the TechMeme thing. Right. But I said, you know, I don't break news. That's what this is about. As I get, you know, it doesn't bother me at all. I don't expect to be there. Sure. I expect to link to people who are there. Like, exactly. Uh, yeah. That's fascinating. I did not realize that I was listed there. <laughs> the next question, <laughs> I hate TechCrunch. They're jerks. Why is TechCrunch number one on the publication leaderboard? <laughs> oh, that's great. I got to send that to Panzerino. That is fantastic. What a great question. Yeah. I'm so glad they so glad they answered my question. You know, he's doing a great job there, Matt. TechCrunch. He really is. Yeah. He's absolutely doing a great job there. He broke the the Tim Tim Cook uh, epic uh, right thing. the privacy speech. Yeah. I, I think that would that was going to come out no matter what. But somehow he was on the ball and had that before uh, before the recording even came out. Yeah. 
All right. So nine to five Mac, that's where Mark uh, is kicking ass as an Apple reporter who, who really doesn't give a crap what Apple thinks of him. Uh, <laughs> all for the better for the rest of us. I really do mean it. I think you're doing great work. I, and like I've said, uh, talking about you on these podcasts the last few weeks, I, it, here's the most amazing thing to me is I don't know where we would be without you. Well, I know where we'd be. We'd be in the dark. You know, but it's absolutely astounding if somebody went around and assembled, and I'm sure Mac rumors will like, what's the consensus on what's coming at WWDC? Uh, a remarkable majority of that information is is from you. So yeah, uh, keep up keep up the good work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, Mark. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, I'll see you after WWDC. Yep. Uh, I know that's a long, long podcast, but people love them. Um, I'm hitting stop.